Welcome to episode 50, everyone. Uh, this is a good podcast. Uh, today we're talking with Connor O'Connor from the Brainerd area of Minnesota. He's got some really interesting insights on how to leverage pattern and follow forage to catch more and bigger bass. Talk, thinking all about the crayfish, the shad, the perch, all that stuff and how it affects how bass set up and how to catch them. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Make sure you listen in on how you're going to win this week's Arsenal Fishing Giveaway Pack. It's later in the episode. Make sure you listen for your chance and how you can enter to win a prize pack from Arsenal Fishing. Enjoy the episode. This week, the Hellabass Bass Fishing Podcast is brought to you by Arsenal Fishing. Arsenal Fishing offers premium custom-made performance apparel and tackle, Arsenal delivers a wide variety of custom-designed baits, accessories, and tools, along with unique utilitarian apparel for all outdoor enthusiasts. As part of their support, you can use code HELLABASS15 to save 15% on all purchases at arsenalfishing.com to support the show. Now let's get back to helping you catch more bass and suck less. All right. We should be live. What's up, Connor? How's it going? Good. Uh, people in the chat, I think there's a few people already, Shadow Bass and Chad, how's the sound and video for everybody? Uh, let us know. Um, make sure everybody can hear us. Sounded good in our setup. Um, so see what they say. So you're just, uh, I mean, you're up in northern Minnesota, so it's even colder up there. I mean, it's got to be hovering right around zero right now. Um, I believe it's negative three out right now. Nice. Good. Chad, yeah, it's, uh, it's cold. Yeah. So does that mean uh, you, you're 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 the uh, unlike me? You do appreciate the ice fishing a little bit. Uh, I do. I, I definitely do uh, appreciate the ice fishing. You know, sitting at home just really doesn't cut it for me. So I always want to get out on the ice. You know, chase whether it's crappie, panfish, eel pout, even uh, occasionally find a bass here or there. But I do just want to be on the ice and just keep learning about what I'm chasing every summer. Right, which will kind of lead us into what we're going to talk about later is kind of using forage to find bass and how to, you know, leverage your electronics a little bit to, to do some of that. So we'll definitely talk about that. So um, maybe we'll even maybe talk a little bit about how possibly, you know, the the winter fishing keeps you sharp, right? Like it helps you kind of uh, hone your craft to say. I would say so. I mean, I spend a lot of time on the off season here, uh, always researching how I can adapt to certain situations whether it be a cold front or stuff like that but i would definitely say that the winter is the time to learn and really hone in on all your skills and hone in on what you want to learn this coming season for sure but at the same time by this time you're ready for that ice to melt by now right oh god yeah i'm I'm (laughs) chomping at the bit pretty hard here um yep uh, so you can, you can go check out Connor's guide service on Instagram and see some of the smallies and walleyes and, and, and the things that he's been plucking through the ice. It's, he, he does okay for himself. Um, so before we get into like the deep, deep and get into everything we're going to talk about tonight, I got a few things, kind of some housekeeping we need to take care of. Um, as always, this stream is brought to you by Arsenal Fishing. Uh, so thanks to Arsenal Fishing for supporting the show. Um, as we talked about before, uh, you can... There's links down in the description below, arsenalfishing.com. Uh, you can use Hellabrass 15 to save 15%. We'll probably talk about some of those products. 
some of the swag that uh, both Connor and I are wearing. Uh, what's up, Monty McWilliams? Glad you can make it. We're doing another visor tutorial tonight, so stick around, Monty. You're not going to want to miss that. Um, that being said, we have the giveaway from last stream that we're going to take care of. We're going to do a random comment picker from that stream with Debo's Fishing. But we also have uh, – I've got to make sure I grab the wrong one because that's my GoPro bag. So <laughs> we've got this gift bag uh, from Arsenal Fishing. So in a little bit, we'll go through some of this. Maybe Connor can give some of his insight on some of the products, uh, what he thinks of that. Uh, and then we'll have a contest for you to enter tonight in the replay to win this. So there'll be a drawing next week. So, yes, random comment from Debo Stream uh, for the Arsenal jigs and the custom painted crankbait from last weekend. And in a little bit, we'll dig into this. Uh, for That will be a little later in the show. We'll let people get in here and get a chance and get to see all that stuff. Um, so that's uh, – and I guess the one other thing that I want to mention is one thing I really want to do going forward. I feel like we're really building a community here. And I want to really start showcasing the community. Uh, so for those that have watched my videos, watched my streams, my motto is help you catch more bass and suck less. Like that's what I'm all about. I want to share information, get good guests on like Connor and other guests we've had and teach people how to catch more bass and just be more efficient on the water. Um, so what I want is for people, whether you learn like a tip, you get a new bait that you saw on the show, you catch a fish, something you learned. Uh, or just catch a big bass or whatever, I would love for you guys to either tag me on Instagram, send me a DM on Facebook, uh, send me an email at richardrelicksringerton.com, whatever it is, just like start tagging me. And then we'll start, we'll do a little segment in these streams or I'll do a weekly video to kind of showcase some of that community. So that's that's going to be the new thing. Um, so that that's one thing I want to do. We'll talk a little bit more of that later. Um and then we'll get into it. Um, I think there's like a really important question. Uh, are you wearing zebra colored pants right now? <laughs> My Zubas? I'm sadly not. That's like uh, a, only a tournament thing? Is that like to get in the swagger for a tournament? What's the story behind the? Because I've seen yeah. them in photos. So what's what's it? Just You know, Zubas are just, I mean, they are the pants of, I mean, a joy. I mean, they're the most comfortable pants I've ever put on. So it started back in high school when, I mean, we were getting ready for basketball, football. You know, you just always wanted to be comfortable, be loose, be ready. And that was just the pants I always wore. And, you know, I mean, I always carry that into, I mean, my passion. So I brought them with me to fishing. And, I mean, granted, it's an eye catcher. So, but, no, personally, I think they're the most comfortable things out there. And they just kind of give you a little, I don't know, a little sizzle, a little, I mean, eye catching. Uh, There's something, something for people kind of a swagger uh, uh well i mean a lot of people always knew that i was always kind of very colorful with my colors you know an orange boat super bright poles big fancy red truck you know i always like to be bright and out there i'm not trying to hide from no one so i mean the pants just kind of add that little uh little saute of the magic on top yeah it's kind of like your zubas are like my 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 custom visors exactly uh, shout out to Monty McWilliams for the $50 donation. Uh, totally not necessary, Monty. That's awesome. Truly appreciate the support. Uh, cheers to Monty uh, for sure. That's awesome. Um, we're de I definitely got to make, uh, we're going to have to connect so I can figure out what hat to turn into a custom visor for you, Monty. So that, that'll be coming for sure. Got to get uh, a Zuba hat. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That, that, that could be next level, a custom Zuba hat. And maybe I think he's a Tennessee fan, so maybe like an orange and white Zubas. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, that's awesome. Cool. 
Um, well, I mean, if you're from Minnesota, you probably know Connor. You've seen him around fishing tournaments, but maybe just a little background on yourself, Connor, because uh, we've got people from all over the country uh, that may know or may not know you, but just a little bit of background about uh, your kind of your tournament and your fishing experience. Um, basically, I, I got the luck of the draw. You know, uh, I grew up on a family resort, so fishing came pretty young. I mean, being right on the water. I grew up in the whitefish chain here in Minnesota. So that was, I mean, the bread and butter to me. Outside of that, I actually lucked out, you know, Seth Fighter being our own homeboy here. He, uh, mm-hmm. he used to guide out of our family resort. So luckily he was the one that kind of got me into fishing and got me hooked on everything. And from there, I mean, of course, we've all watched him progress and get better and join the elites. I am luckily trying to follow in his footsteps, but I'm just doing it a little slower than he was. You know, but outside of that, I just started pounding away when I was young. I started fishing tournaments when I was 12, had my own boat by then, just kept plugging away. And now I'm here at 27, got a little girl that's on the way here. She could be here any day, but outside of that, I'm just going to keep plugging away. So if this stream could get really interesting really fast. We don't it know. Could. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could be running out the door right now for a little girl. Who knows? Nice. That's awesome. So, yeah. Be I, careful, actually, guys. I'm sorry if it does happen. It's. Uh, I think people would understand if it happened, uh, but I got two girls of my own. They're truly a blessing. Keep you on your toes, uh, but it, it's really cool. Um, and uh, so you fished. I mean, you grew up kind of doing like local stuff. Uh, you starting doing more team tournaments. You're do. You've done the Champions Tour for a few years now. What other type of stuff have you been fishing in Minnesota and kind of regionally up to this point? So. For the most part, I mean, I just did as much local stuff as I could, being whether it was the MT3 tournaments or even some of the older XL tournaments. I've done some mm-hmm. of the Denny's. I've even fished some of, I mean, um, just club tournaments, whether it be the Lunker squads or stuff like that. I've just really tried to, I mean, fish with as many people as I could because the more people you fish with, the more you learn. It's just kind of like the world web is right at your fingertips. But you always have that little secret that you might learn from someone else. Yeah. Uh, so I always try and fish with as many people as I can and just learn what they might have to offer. And always take down a granite because there's so much knowledge out there. Outside of that, I've uh, attempted the state tournament a few times. Um, I went down to Lake of the Ozarks once for the regionals event. And I did good during practice. But, of mm-hmm. course, we had a cold front roll through and kind of hurt my tournament results, but you know what? Back on the horse, ready to go at it again. Uh, made the state team this year, so it sounds like we're going down to lacrosse here. I know. I'm sorry, Rich. <laughs> it was a fun event, though. Um, outside of that, um, I fished a couple outside of state tournaments, just like the Big Bass Brawl down on Table Rock. I've done that for a couple years, and just learning outside the state is – starting to be more productive than fishing inside our state is what I'm kind of starting to see. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, I've traveled a decent amount and there is a ton of stuff to learn in Minnesota. It's a very versatile place to learn. It's a great place to learn techniques because there's plenty of fish that are willing to eat and give you that reinforcement, you know, and that confidence on a new technique or a new bait. Um, but I think you do have to travel a little bit south and regionally to get two things under your belt, you need to learn how to fish for shad chasers. And then you need to know what it's like to grind, right? Like those are the big things that you really learn when you start to travel across the country that you don't necessarily uh, get in Minnesota a lot of. I mean, we have a little bit of that, um, but to really 
let it sink in. You need to, to move around a little bit. Uh, definitely agree on that. Eric the Bassman says he's learned a lot fishing as a co in your boat. Oh, appreciate it. Um, so that being said, uh, this is you're stepping it up a little bit. You're gonna kind of on the pro side, you're gonna uh, make your foray into the next level of fishing. So tell us about your plans uh, for that this year in 2021. Well, I tried to plan this out for last year, but you know the funds just weren't there. Couldn't quite do it. So this year, I'm gonna take the gamble. Gonna roll the dice a little bit. I'm going to go fish the uh, Toyota series. Going to try their planes division. So first tournament here is I'm leaving, I believe in less than two and a half weeks. I'll be on to Lake of the Ozarks down in Missouri. And I'm going to kind of chase around, you know, the planes division, fish all three events, see if I can't make the top five and go make a name for myself. But outside of that, I mean, it's, I'm taking a gamble here. Yeah. So you're going to, you're going to fish one division of the, the Toyotas, which I think is what we're calling it these days. Yep. Form, formerly the Costas, the Strens, the Everstarts, the Rayovacs, the... <laughs> the who knows anymore. Yeah. Um, so you got that's all going to be in kind of that Ozark central region, right? Um, yep. Um, so the first event's going to be on Ozarks. The second one's going to be on Grand Lake. And then it looks like we're going to Lake Dardanelle down in Arkansas. In the so, fall? Kind of, late summer or fall for that one? I forget. Nope, all three are actually going to be in the spring here. All right, so you're going to know whether you're, uh, like, before we even really get fishing in Minnesota, you're going to know whether you had a good year in the Toyotas or a bad year. (laughs) Correct. Before we even have ice off our lakes, I'll know if I even did anything. Right. So, and if you do well, right, there's a chance you could maybe, you know, go to the fish the Northerns, right? (laughs) Like, like if you had a good season, you could, because the Northerns don't start till, like, June or something like that, so... Yeah, I, I could quickly hop in them and keep chasing it. But Yeah, that'd be awesome. So if you do well in the Toyotas, that puts you in the Toyota Championship, which is a no-entry, what, two hundred fifty or $300,000 entry fee or something like that, a tournament. Yep. Um, and that is late in the fall, Pickwick. Yep. Nice. Uh, I believe that's late October was when they're going to host that one. Yeah, that's an interesting time. I was actually down there in November. It's a, it's a cool lake. Um, as a guy from Minnesota, you won't feel completely lost on Pickwick. There's some grass and there's some things that you can definitely relate to down there. Perfect. Um, well, what's up, Will? Appreciate it. That's awesome. Um, what's going on? Check the comments. Is Connor in your fantasy club? I don't know. Do you play fantasy fishing, Connor? I do not. I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh yeah, that's absolutely what we're going to get into tonight is understanding the relationship between forage and uh, seasonal patterning. So if you guys want to learn about that, make sure you stick around. We got, uh, I don't know, like 40-some people on YouTube and another 20 on Facebook. So that's really cool. Um, and I actually I connected this thing to Twitch tonight to see what that was like. I have no idea if anybody would ever want to watch anything besides video gaming on Twitch. But we're gonna we're letting it roll. So we'll see if anybody ends up watching it on Twitch. <laughs> um yeah, let's uh so yeah, stepping into that. Uh you got the Toyotas, that'll be cool. We'll be able to follow what's the best? I mean, like you're gonna is like Instagram gonna be the best place to follow along uh your journey in the Toyotas or where will you be? I would say or- probably Instagram or Facebook are gonna be the two easiest for me. Okay. You know, um I'm not huge on social media, you know, I don't really post too much, but I mean now that I'm kind of taking that next step, I'm gonna start really stepping up my game on social media. techniques tips here and there i mean results all that kind of fun stuff i'm going to really start kind of plugging in and keeping everyone following 
whatnot. If I can teach someone on the way, I would love that. So yeah, definitely check out my Instagram page. If not, check out Facebook and just stay tuned. Yeah, and I think if nothing else, you can also follow Arsenal Fishing on uh, Instagram. And anything good news that uh, Connor shares on there, it usually gets reshared by the Arsenal page. Um, so that's also another good uh, outlet to check him out. Um, cool. And then so what? on top of the Toyotas, obviously that's going to free you up about the time ice really gets broken here and our season kicks off. So what uh, – is what are your plans for fishing in minnesota what tournaments and things like that well quite right after the last toyota you know i'm gonna quickly sneak my way over to wisconsin of course you can't miss the sturgeon bay open yeah. i got a very uh, wild-haired buddy that i gotta keep a promise to so i'm gonna sneak over there and uh do that with him but outside of that when i come home my state tournaments look very simple this year. I'm going to keep it kind of playing. I'm going to go fish the Champions Tour events. So we have three events this year. And then their championship round, which sadly I will not be able to make. If I make it or whether I don't make it in points, I can't make it either or because I will be going down to fish the regionals tournaments down on lacrosse. So outside of that, I'm going to keep it real simple here in the States and just kind of compile up my money this year, work real hard through the summer weeks and get ready for next year. So that way I can maybe go for six or even nine Toyotas mm -hmm. and see what happens. Yeah. Awesome. That's cool. Um, who do you fish with at Sturgeon Bay? Uh, I'm going to be fishing with Lyle Held. Okay. Yeah. So Very cool. Uh, I know he's one of the best brawl outdoor guys. And I will say, if you guys want to learn anything about your hummingbirds or stuff like that, definitely check out their page. It yeah. has been an eye opener to me, to a lot of guys on how much you can actually adapt and learn and just advance your technology settings just by watching some of the videos they post. So make sure to definitely check out their page because they're going to blow your mind. Yeah. Bass brawl has some really good stuff. Um, not like a ton of content. They don't, they're not like hammering it out like me every week, but uh, what they do put out is really high quality. And uh, I have been talking to them and they're definitely going to come on the stream eventually here. We'll get them on the schedule. So for you guys that are into your electronics and especially if you're into your hummingbirds, there's going to be a ton of good information in that one. Um, so what are your thoughts about the bass season in Minnesota? Is it good? Is it bad? You know, personally, I think it's good, but also, I mean, I'm very 50-50 on it. I wish we would be year-round or at least make our season longer for smallmouth season, especially. Because, I mean, getting closed off so early does hurt. But, you know, I personally think that we should have a no-bedfish season. So, basically, not allowed to actually target these fish during bedfish season. Just for the simple fact of reproductive reasons and trying to keep our lakes, you know, better and keep them high populated with good quality genetics in the lake. But I mean, outside of that, I, I mean, fishing's fishing. Yeah. So when you say not targeting, like not being able to target all or catch and release or. I think like the, the only off limits season that they should have is literally just during the spawn. That should but be you should it. be like no fishing or should be catch and release. Like no fishing at all for that species. Just for the simple fact of you only have to wait one month versus, like, for example, smallmouth go off in September. 
you got to wait from September all the way back to May now. You got a few months in between there that you can't target them, can't look at them, can't even attempt to go for them before the DNR get involved. Largemouth will end here shortly here in February. So can't target them no more from then until May. So it kind of mean there's bigger gaps if you look at it now versus mm -hmm. if you literally just take like one month per species. So one month for largemouth, you can't target them. And one month for smallmouth, you can't target them. You know, I think we'd yeah. see a lot higher, I mean, weights coming off certain lakes, a lot bigger fish growing over time. The populations would grow twice. That's just my personal take on it. Sure. What's but up, I mean, Kyle? What's up, Sean Lai? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm definitely, I don't know. You hear different things about spawning, and it's really like, honestly, the, the smallmouth are probably the most vulnerable, right, for the spawning, uh, oh, to be down. honest. Um, though I think we'd probably have to have some kind of zones for that, right, because what's good for International Falls is not good for Mankato. <laughs> um, not that there's a ton of smallies down there, but, like, obviously what smallies there are would spawn really early. But then again, maybe it could just be like, honestly, there's probably about a dozen or 20 lakes that really need to be protected. Correct. So we closed the, the season on those lakes, uh, like Mille Lacs and, and a few other lakes. That's probably would also do it. So I don't know that we need a blanket. I kind of see what you're saying. You know, some people say that, you know, fishing for bedding bass doesn't matter. Some people do. I mean, whatever. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not an expert, but. Uh, I think overall, I think we'd both agree that we'd like to see a, an extended catch and release season at the minimum. Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, I think outside of that, I mean, if you really think about it, our best chance of catching, say, the next state record smallmouth is going to come in the fall. And if it's not going to come in the fall, it's going to come in that very early, early springtime. But, I mean, before season opens, you'll see a state record. Or even after season closes, that's when you'll see the state record. For they sure. get on the food forwards or starting to eat aggressively, starting to pack up, get ready for winter. That's your best chance of seeing some of these state record fish. But half the time, season's closed. So, yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest things that makes it difficult to make the jump <clears throat> as a guy from Minnesota is that we really don't get that late winter, early pre spawn practice without traveling. We don't. Uh, and so that's the one thing you really need to learn. And that's one thing that you're going to run into, right? I mean, you've done some of that, but that's where you're going to be tested when you get down to uh, Lake of the Ozarks, uh, for sure. Definitely. Oh, let's see. So, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so that's cool. Um, before we get into too much more, uh, let's maybe take care of that, uh, that drawing and see who won the prizes from last week. So... I'm going to bring up a comment picker. Share screen. Make Connor's head a little smaller, which is not easy to do. Oh. Um, oh. All right. So just a reminder, for those that didn't get your comment in, you may have like about 10 seconds to get it in. But actually, you don't. Probably. So uh, one of the prizes here will be this custom-painted uh Three-quarter ounce red-eye shad. Um, actually, I'm going to just, while we're talking here quick, uh, from Bag 5 Baits. So it, you can go back and check out the stream last week. We covered all this. So there's going to be that. And then I've got, uh, I think it's like six Super K swim jigs here, um, hand-tied custom jigs. Uh, so 
we're going to draw for two winners. Uh, and how I'm going to handle it is if, uh, if the person said what they were most interested, the first person, they'll get their pick. Uh, if not, Connor is going to decide which what they get. <laughs> and then the second Pressure. person will get whatever's left. Uh, Pressure. Yeah. So um, if you don't like what you get, you can blame uh, Connor and you can leave a nasty message. All right. We're going to pick the winner. Oh, all right. The winner is Tom Mix. Uh, and he said he wanted the bag five bait. So it's pretty clear. And he's here. So congratulations. And this is funny because, Tom, I'm pretty sure I just watched another stream where you won something. I don't remember what it was, but he just won another drawing, another stream not that long ago. So congrats, Tom. This is your new crankbait. Uh, you know how to get a hold of me. Uh, send me a direct message. We'll get your address, and this will be your bait. So that's awesome. Uh, congratulations, Tom. Pays to be uh, a winner. Now we're going to do it again right away for the jigs. What's that? Oh, shoot, it's not me? It's not you. Well, you didn't comment that I recall. So. Well, dang it. Uh, but you maybe you can comment this week. Oh, I'm gonna uh, have to now. And he said uh, his favorite jig color was a green pumpkin with a few strands of orange, which uh, is pretty solid. So Wyatt Hayes, you are the winner of the jigs, and I'm gonna write that down uh, so I don't have to rewatch the stream in case I forget. Wyatt Hayes is a regular, so I'm sure he'll see this. Um, so both Wyatt and Tom. Uh, get a hold of me, get your address, and we'll knock these prizes out. Congratulations. Um, that's awesome. I'm excited to see both you guys win, and uh, that's cool. All right, so I think let's maybe uh, save. Maybe let's start talking about uh, <laughs> this, the, the main topic. We're about 25 minutes in, so we've got a lot of people in here. Um, when I was talking to you about topics for the stream, we talked about different things and you said your, your main deal is really leveraging forage and having kind of a bit of a system or a concept for how to turn forage into, you know, I don't know, bigger bass, more consistent bass. Uh, what do you think? Like what, what's the premise high level? And then we'll have some conversation and back and forth. You know, I, I would have to say my biggest thing is if you don't have forage, you don't have bass. You know, I've heard that comment go around, whether it being the high level fishing up in the elites or even just in club level. If you're not seeing Chad, you're not seeing gills, you're not seeing crayfish, you're not finding any type of food source, you're not finding fish. So I took a couple of years to really just sit back and pull up my DNR website and start going through certain lakes and what the lakes have in them, because every lake's going to have different type of shad or rainbow fin, or I mean, brown eerie shiners or all sorts of different type of forage. And you start finding a pattern where certain lakes that are popping off bigger fish tournament bodies of water have certain groups of forage in them. And I just started really trying to learn as much as I could about that forage and then pattern how bass move to that forage. And I started watching my results and tournaments and everything else start climbing. So that was the big thing that I really started kind of keying on for, especially in Minnesota here. Yeah. So you touched on a few things interesting there. So do you use it? Uh, say hi to Copper the Coon Dog in the background there. Um, <clears throat> so do you use it for like fun fishing? And when you're looking for big fish, are you using that to research like what lakes you choose? Or are you using this more of a tool on how you attack a tournament lake or both? I use it for actually all three. So if okay. I just want to go out fun fishing, 
let's know, start there for fun fishing. Let's start how you approach it there. Fun fishing, of course, you know, everyone wants to go out and catch as many fish as they want. Personally, I like to go out and catch the biggest fish I can. So I will start kind of coordinating down and choosing which lakes have potentially the biggest bass in them due to certain types of forage that live in the lake. And I'll really try to just hone in on maybe three or four spots of the entire lake that will have that forage and just try and catch the biggest bass I possibly can. And are you looking for, I mean, are there certain forage that you think are good indicators of bigger bass in a lake in Minnesota? Regarding Minnesota, I would have to say if you have any type of lakes that have bluegill, hybrid gills in it, or you have pumpkin seeds, that's the first start of having bigger forage in a lake. The next step is having, of course, crappie. Those are your four biggest forage eaters for producing monster bass in Minnesota anyways. So we don't have gizzard chads or bull shad down here, like up here. We just have our sunfish and our crappies. And what I really look for in those is you're looking for the weediest basins that you can find. So come springtime here, you know, I'm going to go start poking around some of the bays, start fishing with some slip bobbers and looking for fish like that. And if I start catching a good number of sunfish, a good number of crappies, I know that the next step or the next predator that's going to roll into that bay is going to be the biggest bass of the bay. So then I start kind of mapping out that's the next step is when these fish start pulling into them bays, the bass will be shortly behind them. And then behind that will be the northern pike, and thus the food chain starts applying. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where those are my two biggest things. I'm always looking for bluegills, and I'm always looking for crappies. And that's literally from spring to fall. I'm looking for bluegills and crappies all spring and fall because the biggest bass of the lake will be following that school around. Okay. Yeah. Uh I can agree with all that. What do you say to, I know there's a couple of guys that like swim baits and they always look for golden shiners yep. in lakes. And then I've also people that had bullheads or juvenile carp. What are your thoughts on those? Golden shiners for sure. I will agree with that, but there's not a tremendous amount of lakes that have them. Mm-hmm. So you have very few lakes in Minnesota that actually have them and have a good population of them where the bass can really forage on that. Uh, with bullheads, bullheads I kind of see as, they're like a 10% forage type of fish. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't see too many times that they're really targeting them. But, I mean, of course, you run across a very easy meal. A bass has no problem going after that. But now, all this theories is, I'm just talking about largemouth right now mm-hmm. with when it comes down to bluegill and crappie. Right. Smallmouth are on their whole other aspect of food forage. But... For, I mean, literally chasing fish early spring to late fall, you just got to graph around and really try and pinpoint where your bluegill and your crappies are going to be holding and how they hold on weed lines and moving down the, the shelves. Well, thanks, Wyatt. Um, it's always awesome to pay it forward to the kids. I'm sure I got uh, some uh, – actually, I have a seminar coming up for the Rosemount High School team, so I'll give them away now there instead to those kids. That's awesome. Thanks, Wyatt. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like, and I, 
so golden shiner i think is a good especially if you're if you're trophy hunting it's a good indicator if you're really hunting out lakes or lakes i think that particular bait fish lends it to a bass that is more likely to eat a swim bait. Uh, so if you like to throw big baits and you like to trophy hunt, that's a good indicator. Um, but I think the, the crappie and bluegill sunfish thing is something you can apply almost every lake across the country, right? I mean, right. there's very few lakes that bass exist that don't have good populations of uh, you know, panfish. Um, so, you start out in the spring, like you said, you're looking for those basin fish, the weeds, right? So now, how are you targeting them? Uh, now, we're going to stick with largemouth, and then maybe we'll circle back to, to smallies. So in the spring, early spring, so we're talking pre-spawn, right? I mean, yep. um, what is your go-to for targeting these fish uh, in these weed basins? And then, then we'll get into, like, how are we going to follow these fish, and what is that going to mean throughout the rest of the season? Okay. So normally when spring comes, the first thing that happens is when the ice starts coming off the lakes, you have to start looking for your backwater bays. Mm -hmm. Usually they're mud bays or they're very shallow bays, stuff like that. That's going to pull in the warmest water fastest. So your big supply of sunfish, crappies, all your forage is going to quickly run to those bays because that's where the warmest water seems to be. With that being said, bass are going to fall into the warmest water. So usually when I start pulling into these areas, if I start noticing that there's three, four boats in the back bay and they're all crappie fishing, that's the first flag going up in the air saying, Hey, the next step in is going to be the bass. Sure. So when I start seeing a bunch of boats start packing up in the bays and I mean, I'll drive around the lake for four or five hours, checking out every bay of the lake, seeing what the water temps are. And I usually try and select three bays that are going to be the warmest temps just before I even make a cast. Mm-hmm. And after that, I will pull into a bay and I won't start fishing in the back of the bay right away. I'll start kind of towards the main water. And I'll usually start with either a jerk bait or a swim jig, something slow rolling, slow moving. Don't want to really get too aggressive because these fish are still cold. They don't want to really move after the winter. I mean, they haven't quite really put on that exciting like frenzy. So... I just work my way slowly back in, and I've also noticed a lot of times is that these fish haven't quite moved off of eating bugs from the winter, so mm-hmm. they're not done eating like blood worms or plankton or stuff like that. So a lot of times, just throwing a little crappie jig or just a little bandfish jig is the key to getting a lot of these bass to eat right now. But I know as the weather warms up, then fish get a little bit more aggressive. They start getting a little bit more temperamental on trying to put that food forage back in their system. So they can start putting on the weight, getting ready for the spawn. And of course, I mean, these fish are going to eat aggressively for two weeks. Once that ice really comes off, they're going to get aggressive and they're going to start chewing everything. And once that happens, the next step for them is spawn. So, Yeah, I can totally agree with that. Um, I've seen that. I, I agree on a lot of things there. It seems like right after ice out, there's a mad rush shallow. Because the, the whole food system goes shallow. I'm, I could get warmer water. I think you get a lot of bugs and minnows and stuff that just, and, and sometimes freakishly shallow. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think like overall they go up like super fast and then they kind of pull back again before, like they, like they don't stay up there until spawn. It typically like they go up, they, they like binge and then they pull back and then kind of slowly trickle in uh, for spawn. Do you agree? I mean, Definitely. Overall, yep. Totally agree. It's kind of like you go up to the buffet, 
you eat really aggressively, you go back to your chair, you sit down, you got to sit there for a little bit before you go back to the plate. You're kind of just, oh, but when you do go back up, that's when you're ready to finally just say, all right, I'm done. Ready to pay the bill. Yeah. And that's, uh, I was going to say, I agree. It's slow rolling, like a quarter ounce swim jig uh, with a real subtle, uh, like a, like an arsenal tactical minnow, <laughs> a sad, yeah. subtle paddle tail um, is a great way to catch uh, those, those like just like almost rubbing it on the bottom half the time, slowly bowling it over old lily stocks and clumps of, you know, sometimes dead grass, sometimes emerging grass. Um, and then the same thing, like a little grub, little crappie jig tipped with a little plastic uh, is, can be really deadly. Um, and you might catch dinner at the same time. So it's oh, definitely um, cool. So now them fish, uh, do, do you feel the bluegills and the crappies pull back out too, much like the bass or? Um, they will a certain point. They won't pull quite as far back out. Um, they'll pull maybe to the middle of the bay. Mm-hmm. So they'll pull right to literally just, the center just of the pull bay. into the gut or the channel or yep, like the little uh, the trench or the little channel swing coming yeah. back out. They'll pull back into there right before they're ready to pull back in. Or when they notice the bass are starting to actually take over the super shallow stuff because they want to start making beds. All them gills will start pulling out just a little bit further just because they don't want to start getting, you know, picked on by bass as they're trying to comb around a bed. But for the most part, they don't go too far. So they're not going to just pick up and leave and go to a whole new section of the lake. For sure. Um, And so now, like, what's your progression like? Who, who spawns when bass, crappie, bluegill, and how do you see that playing off of each other? Um, from personal experience, I see that bass are the first ones to spawn. So they're going to pull up, they're going to feed, they're going to get done feeding, and they'll pull back out, rest for a little bit, then they'll pull back in, they'll start their entire ritual. So they'll start spawning. After their spawn is done, when they're just coming off their spawn, that's when all bluegill, crappies, all that start pulling up and they start getting ready to spawn. So now that bass are starting to hit that post-spawn era, that's when they're really starting to get back on the food train after they've rested and got all done spawning. And that's when food forage really becomes a full buffet for them mm-hmm. because these fish are up shallow. They're not worrying about whether a predator is near or far away. They're just waiting to get plucked off by a big bass. Yeah. So that's kind of how that progression sets up for that springtime. I don't know. I guess from my is that like crappies are slightly ahead of the sunfish for the most part. <clears throat> I would say they're only about a two week period behind, like in front of the sunfish. Yeah, but they're not too not too aggressive. They're a little more on the tail of the bass, and then the bluegills are just a little bit better. Correct. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're going with bigger lakes, it seems that with bigger bodies of water, that the water tip doesn't really jump up or down. Mm-hmm. They're really just right behind the tail of the spawn for largemouth. So it'll literally go largemouth immediately into crappie. And then right after crappies are just getting off, it's immediately into sunfish. Yeah. Do you see the sunfish going through multiple rounds? I do. Yeah. Okay. I'll see them spawning all the way into almost August. So. And progressively get deeper. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So usually when I start seeing them spawn, I'll start seeing them spawn right around that late May to beginning of June, I'll start seeing them start making beds up shallow. And that's anywhere between two feet of water out to five feet. 
And then as June progresses, you might find another cluster of bluegill spawning, and that's going to be out in that 6 to 10 range. Mm-hmm. And then later in the summer, if you still have some that haven't spawned yet, I'll start seeing them into that July series and even all the way up into August. I mean, I'll find them out from 10 to just shy of 20 feet of water. I'll find a honeycomb of beds out there. Right. <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, and that's, that's all plays into the, <laughs> the foraging following these fish. All right. So the bass stop. They're done spawning. Then, so do you hang in the shallows and target the bass that are going to hang and feed on the, the bluegills and crappies? Or do you like to pull out? Like, what is your, your normal, uh, how do you leverage that coming off the spawn? Coming off of the spawn? Coming off the bass spawn, when the panfish are spawning, are you like, are you looking for those shallow post-spawn fish that are harassing the panfish? Or do you start working out uh, to the fish that pull out quicker? Like, what is your... As the bass are spawning, right when that spawn ends, I personally like to pull off and I like to just start scanning the lake. So I'll spend days on end just driving up and down banks looking for honeycombs of sunfish all potted up or even crappies that are all bound up. And I'll just start marking areas. So I'll take my hummingbird and I'll literally start mapping it all out. And I'll start drawing waypoints of circles where I know that there's a big honeycomb of food. And that food's not going to move for a week, two weeks. I know it's going to stay right there. So any bass that are in the area that just got done spawning will take whatever, a couple days from two, three days to rest up to even a week to rest before they go back into the food and they start trying to fill back up and get on that feed bag again to kind of regain some energy after the spawn. So once I've got these areas kind of marked, I will filter through these areas and just kind of poke back and forth. And I'll start running swim baits through there, small swim jigs, chatter baits, buzz bait here and there, even a popper. And I'll just kind of comb around the areas and just let the bass tell me what area is going to go for the day. Um, Not every area is going to go off, but I will say the biggest fish of the lake are going to be sitting not far from that food. Mm -hmm. Well, you might only get one bite per area, but it's going to be the right bite, the bite that you really want. So you like to target the, I don't know, the slightly harder to find, right? Because obviously there's a group of panfish that are going to be in the canals and the shallow baits where you're going to visibly be able to see them a lot of times, but you're looking for more of the ones that are just a little bit deeper, a little bit maybe on inside weed lines or yep. kind of that mid-depth, and, the, and you're going to target the, the the bass that are patrolling those crappies and bluegills that are just a couple feet deeper than the, the shallowest spawners, sounds like. Yep, that's kind of what I like to target, just for the simple fact that a lot of the fish that do spawn in the bays, like your panfish that spawn in your bays, your channels, any of your little uh, swings pulling in, usually get a lot of boat traffic coming over top of them. Mm -hmm. So with all that boat traffic, it kind of stirs up the water. I'm sure there's a lot of great fish there, but I I personally think that fish will eat way more aggressively to something that's more quiet, more just agile in the water than having 10 boats drive over top of them and then they see a bait. So, I mean, I'm sure it kind of mixes up the water and it probably makes it look really good because they can't tell between a bluegill and a your swim jig. But I just think that some of the bigger bass have just learned to just kind of stay away from the aggressive boat traffic areas and just kind of hang out in that little bit deeper water where it's a little bit more relaxed and chase some of them panfish that are just right on the edge. 
Sure. So you mentioned swim jig several times, and you were talking mostly reaction baits. Are you still mostly looking at reaction, or do you slow down and fish soft plastics in these areas, or what's? Um, there's quite a few times that I will slow down. I'll take just a plain Senko and leave it weightless, and I'll let it just kind of flutter in an area, or I'll even jump into like a Nico series or a Ned rig, and I'll play that. The only problem that I have found though with playing with those is that the sunfish find a high a high target for those. They seem to really want to go play with it. And then you get a lot of misleading areas because you have more gills playing with your bait than anything. Where with the swim jig, they don't really want to come up and chase it and peck at it the whole time. Um, I'm really trying to match the forage when I'm out chasing these fish because I always want to catch the biggest fish I can. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, throwing, for example, like a boomstick here, it's a... doesn't quite look like a sunfish because it's more of a worm style. But now when I jump into throwing, say, my swim jig, I can mimic this way closer to that sunfish or that crappie than I can with that actual uh, boomstick. So, I mean, I'm just trying to match the forge the best I can. So you throw and, a lot of green pumpkins, watermelons this time of year. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's what, like a four and a half inch tactical minnow on what, a quarter ounce swim jig? or Correct. That is, that's actually my go-to in the early spring. Yeah. So like to throw that around docks, throw it around uh, that inside weed line. Mm-hmm. I think uh, majority of these really big fish like to travel up and down that inside weed line. So if they don't pull into the bay fully, they can still travel up and down and they still have their food. They still have their forts, uh eat on the edge. So that's kind of my, literally my go-to right there. Yeah. So with for, for largies, do you always stick with the four and a half or do you ever go down to like the three and a half inch minnow? Um, kind of depends on the lake. You know, if I start really looking at some of the beds and I start catching some of these sunfish, you know, because I will target the sunfish actually to see how big they are. I mean, if I'm pulling up eight inch, nine inch, 10 inch sunfish, mm-hmm. I'm going to throw a little bit bigger bait. Sure. But if I pull into a little honeycomb of them, and I'm catching three inch, four inch, excuse me, five inch sunfish, you know, I'm going to kind of bump it down. You know, I'll even go to just like a singular, like just a plain tack minnow on just a jig head with a little 16th ounce head. And I'll just kind of slow roll that through there and just see what happens. Sometimes I'll reel it three, four times, kill it, just let it slowly fall down. And they'll pick up that reel real fast, get two, three cranks out of it and let it fall down. You know, I'll try and mimic that sunfish the most I can and just how they're kind of like floating down to the bottom. Oh, got to check something out, float back down. So that's that my other big go-to. Uh, just a little jig head there? Little yep, mushroom. it's just a little three-inch uh, tack minnow with a little one sixteenth ounce money head. Yeah. And, I mean, I can say personally, that's this little right here. Or is that green? This is actually the uh, – I think it's the uh, – gill color from arsenal here the bluegill right yeah yep it's kind of like a smoke blue gold flake type yeah yep got a little bit of gold in it a little bit of blue that nice little shine to it very cool uh so you, you kind of interesting something there so you carry some panfish rods while you're bass fishing to kind of sample the the forage i do personally do you do that a lot of the year outside of the spring as well or oh yeah I'll, okay. I'll be, it'll be middle of August and I'll be pan fishing or I'll be chasing crappies trying to find them fish and just make sure that I'm staying on the correct school of fish. So 
are you when you do that are you sampling for size or just to confirm that they are crappies versus like perch or something like that or yep I, i'll sample the fish to make sure that i'm chasing for example bluegill instead of crappies or if i'm chasing crappies instead of perch i'll just make sure that i'm chasing the correct fords that i'm trying to base my target after right so, so either that helps you make bait decisions and or if you know you've been catching them on crappies right yep then you scan a school you want to confirm that this is also crappies and not just a school of gills right correct fish around but you may be trying to be very dialed in on something and uh target that you know you know really dial it in so okay that makes sense yeah i've heard a lot of stories about uh the biggest bass in the lake throughout the season tend to hang around the crappie schools i would say they do I would say the biggest bass that I've ever caught in our state have all either had crappies. You can see literally the tail of a crappie in their throat or they're not more than 20 yards, 30 yards from that school. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, so we talked about kind of spring. Uh, so what do you see these panfish doing um, into summer and when do you start paying attention to crayfish? So, Do you pay attention to crawfish for largemouth, I guess? For largemouth, I would say it'd be about right after post-spawn kind of kicks off, right when these fish actually start pulling out deep and they start pulling out towards their their kind of summer resting places is when I start thinking that that crawfish forage might start playing a factor. Because at this time, this is when the crawfish are getting their summer molt on, so their colors are coming out, their shells are getting really hard. You know, they're actually starting to put some protein in their systems. Um, Outside of that, the panfish start leaving the shallows and they start kind of working their way out into that inside weed line to kind of rest. And then they start working further into the grass lines and you start catching them anywhere from eight out to 16 feet, 17 feet. And you start catching a big abundance of fish because they're all pulling out from the bays and all their other locations. So the bass start really kind of just picking between whether they want to eat a crayfish today or whether they want to eat a bluegill today, whatever the easiest meal is, they're taking it. Mm-hmm. And so I would start pulling out further during, I mean, that late post spawn and start kind of flipping jigs more, dragging them on the bottom, trying to really mimic those crayfish imitations and even running a crankbait right on the rocks and just, I mean, burying it into the rocks trying to just get a reaction strike of say a crayfish popping out or running. But my big thing is in Minnesota, this is something that we don't see too much of. We don't see a lot of largemouth chasing crayfish. Mm-hmm. So we're more of a, a bait fish forage up here for largemouth, which, you know, I will say when you go south, that will change and it will change fast. Sure. So quick question from Brandon. He wants to know what your what your Minnesota PB is. My Minnesota PB for largemouth, I have an 813. Nice. So 8.13 or 8 pounds, 13 ounces? 8 pounds, 13 ounces. Nice. So you're knocking on the door. I am. <clears throat> Not quite there, though. Because what, uh, 815 is the state record? Correct. Yep. Yeah, my uh, my biggest largemouth is only 7 and a quarter in minnesota so okay still uh it's still up there (laughs) for most people in minnesota um anytime you catch a fish over seven pounds in minnesota just a 
Yeah, that's a freak. Uh, oh, it is. Absolute freak. Yeah. Uh, and Brendan, with your 7.2, that like I said, anything over 7 is a freak. So you should be plenty proud of that uh, for sure. Um, so when the fish move off, right, we're talking about post-bond. What are you looking for? I mean, I assume this is when you're talking like side imaging a lot or 2D. Like what are, what kind of tools? Where are you looking? What is your strategy for identifying uh, these panfish schools and how the bass are and do you look for bass or you only look for the panfish? Like what, what, what are you looking for on your electronics? So the biggest thing that I'm always looking for is grass. I'm looking for good, healthy vegetation because good, healthy vegetation then draws in the panfish or draws in the forage. Outside of that, I will look individually on my uh, hummingbirds. So mm-hmm. I like to use my down image a lot, my side scan, and even my 360 to really locate these schools of fish. And I'm not looking for bass. I'm looking for just the forage because I know the bass will not be too far behind. A lot of times you're not going to see these bass because they're going to be buried in the weeds and they're going to be kind of hiding from their food. So that way you get that quick ambush point. But that's where I'm really looking. I'll drive down a weed line and I'll take four or five passes up down the same weed line just seeing if anything changes just from the motor noise to anything or, you know, wind direction changes them and pushes them. And I'll literally just try and locate where there's a good section of bluegills or panfish kind of pulling up. They're kind of moving through. And one thing I have seen is bluegills seem to come back to the same area every year. So there might be, say you have a special weed line that's, you know, 200 yards long, but you notice that, there's a small like 20 yard window of that entire weed line. That's just the juice. That's just the money. Mm -hmm. Well, there's gotta be a reason for that. So what I've kind of figured out is sometimes it is grass. It's different types of grass in there, or there's a hard spot in there. But a lot of my areas are, that's just where the sunfish like to congregate during summertime. So they always pull out there and they just choose that one specific area. I don't know why, but that's just kind of their like stopping ground for the summer. And all my big bass seem to just hunger on the outside of the weed edge or they hang right in the weeds, just picking off every bluegill they can. And it's a pretty easy meal when, I mean, you got a four inch bluegill just sitting there, not seeing that five pound largemouth waiting for you. Nice. So what, what belt is uh, Chad talking about? Oh, <laughs> Uh, so Chad and I used to fish a lot of tournaments together and we made a joke because he used to run some tournaments, uh, back when he was a tournament director, he used to have the Optima true blues. So him and I used to be the only two guys that would run Optima batteries back then. So it was literally a battle between just the two of us to see who would take that, uh, that prize pack home after each tournament. So we always made a joke. Who's going to wear the belt for each tournament. And currently, I'm just going to say, Chad, your challenge is is accepted. I still hold the belt. It's on the wall. It's okay. Uh, So in the summertime, what are your go-to baits and setups? Uh, You probably have different setups for when you think they're on the edge versus getting in the grass and and kind of mining them out of the grass. What what kind of, what are your your top tactics? My personal top tactics, no, whether it be from spring to fall to even winter, I'll say you can never go wrong with a big jig. 
I mean, that's the number one thing for going in grass, out of grass, playing on the grass. Hmm? Like three quarter ounce, one ounce. What kind of? Uh, anywhere from three eighths all the way down to one ounce. Okay. I mean, it all depends on how the fish are feeding. If they're being super, super aggressive, you can get a heavier weight. These fish are being a little bit more finicky. They're not quite trying to chase the bait too hard. You know, I'll start downsizing and going to a lighter weight. Um, if it's really, really windy out, you know, a lot of times I'll throw a three eighth ounce mm-hmm. and I'll just let that jig sit on top of the grass because the grass is moving through the wind. So as that jig is getting kind of moved around, those fish are going to find it. But if I notice that, you know, these fish aren't really acting to it and it's really windy out and I'm really struggling to feel my bait, I'll bump up to a half ounce, three quarter ounce, and I'll start kind of getting further in the grass to try and see if, you know, these fish want to be a little bit more buried in it. But I'd say a jig is my number one go-to. I just started playing with the uh, Uzi jig from Mega Bass. Sure. Which is a, has the plate on. a big swim bait. And I mean, it's a like a big swim bait, big swim jig kind of bait. It's got that little spinner on the bottom, and I'm pairing that with a five-inch spark shad on the back. And what I've realized is you can't fish it like a jig, can't fish it like a swim jig. You literally just have to throw it out, let it hit bottom, take one or two big hard cranks real fast, and just let it float back down. And it really kind of mimics a sunfish kind of darting out of the grass and then slowly floating back down to the weed bed. And then you'll get that two big cranks again, and it'll dart back out and just slowly float back down. And some of them big bass during the summer were absolutely crushing it. I so mean, I almost lost the rod six or seven times. Almost like how people fish the chicken or the preacher. Exactly. Day. It's yeah. basically another form of the chicken. It just, I feel it's a little bit more subtle than the chicken. Mm-hmm. I feel like with the chicken and all the hair, it just pushes so much water that a lot of fish look at it. They kind of question it, and then they just swim away. But then you have those other fish that literally will knock the absolute rod out of your hand. So those are two baits that I mean, even the chicken's another one midsummer that I like to play with a lot. It's just a big fish bait. Yeah. So that three the that Uzi jig is that a three quarter ounce or um when I'm out on the weed lines, I like to bait that five eighths, the three quarter ounce, and I'll fish that anywhere from fifteen all the way up to twenty-eight feet. Um but once I start kind of going shallower than there, I start throwing that half ounce and kind of playing around on the inside weed lines and picking around the more sparse weeds and trying to play around that. All right. According to uh, Brian, it's Uwaze, not Uzi. So there you go. All right. Well, learning tip. <laughs> I call Thank it you. the swim jig with the, the blady thing on it. <laughs> I call it the big fish catcher. Nice. Um, do you do anything different when you fish, when you feel the bass are on crappies versus bluegills? Definitely. Um, between coloring and I actually will bulk up my bait way more. So if I know they're on sunfish, I'm going to kind of keep a small skinny profile on my swim baits. I'm not going to have too many uh, strands coming out of my jigs or stuff like that. I kind of keep it a very slim profile. Don't want it to be very, uh, too bulky or too big don't want to really intimidate the bass but the second that i know that they're chasing crappies and they're really starting to kind of key in on just crappies i'll bulk that thing up as far as i can add a couple more strands in my skirts and i'll really try and just make that thing seem as big and bulky as it can and that's usually when you'll start noticing that these fish aren't going to lightly just kind of come up and pluck it 
the bite between a sunfish and a crappie when you're getting literally bit from a bass is the bass will knock the rod out of your hands with a sunfish. The bass will take the rod from you with a crappie. Mm -hmm. They just, they have to get that bait and they can't give it a chance. So they will absolutely take the rod from you if they have to. I mean, do you go to more patterns like this at all for crappies or? I'll get into that kind of that silver, that pearl, kind of that little black blue with a little bit of purple fleck in it. Mm -hmm. And you, do you go with bigger trailers then or? <clears throat> a little bit. Um, what I'll try and do is I'll try and get a paddle tail with a little bit more thump to it. Sure. So I kind of want that thing to really give off a big appearance. Like a gambler, um, easy swimmer, or something like that. Something with a little yeah, bit. for like an exo swimmer, or even some of the uh, like the rage swimmers got those big paddle tails on the back. Mm -hmm. Bigger kayak bump up yep. to like a four point whatever kayak or something like that. <clears throat> yep, I'll definitely try and just get the biggest paddle tail I can, just to give off the most you know thump I can, especially when I'm chasing crappies. Um, anything different on the approach as far as like crappies for, I mean, do you see like, <clears throat> do the fish feeding on crappies like it off the bottom or more slow rolled or is it still just like presentation wise, do you change things up at all or not? Presentation wise, I really don't have to change it up too much. I mean, all the fish are pretty well the same. So crappies and sunfish literally act just the same. They just hold in a little bit different areas sometimes. Outside of that, there's a lot of times that they hold in the same area. So you'll go the first 10 yards and you'll catch fish chasing just sunfish. And then you'll literally roll in 10 yards later and there'll be a school of crappies. So these fish like to mingle all the time. They like to coexist in the same areas. Mm -hmm. So you kind of just got to feel through. I mean, there are times that you'll pull in, you'll throw something imitating a sunfish. Oh, excuse me. You won't get bit you won't really get that reaction, but then you'll switch up and throw something that looks like a crappie in there, and then you'll get a quick reaction or you'll get that quick bite. So, I mean, never leave it out that it's only one fish per area, like just sunfish chasers per area. They will coexist happily in the same areas. So you always just got to keep an open mind on that. Banger says hi. Ooh, banger. What's up, buddy? <clears throat> um... Okay, so when you you talked about do you do you really stick with the jig when you're like flipping the grass, or do you ever experiment with like Tokyo rigs or Texas rigs? Or personally, my own preference, I don't really get too far into a Tokyo rig. Um, I will flip a crowd tube, or I will even flip just a plain tube into my grass beds. Uh, I've started experimenting with kind of like speed worms and a little bit bigger worms, like the sea down south, and trying to find out if they want to really hone in on stuff like that. Or I have, like, for, say, the Lake Fork Hyper Freaks that I like to play with the giant paddle tails on the back. And I will experiment a lot with that. But it seems 9 out of the 10, they really just like to choose that jig. Um, that's just what I've seen in my peripheral preference. Outside of that, I will say that, I mean, a craw tube's the other real go-to. For sure. Um, yeah, I've... I've... You know, I, I've had the same thoughts. Like you see Florida and like Alabama, and you see them just in grass. That that speed worm kills, and I've like I get all excited every year to like try it for a little bit, and I catch a couple fish, but I never like feel like it's the deal up here. I don't know. Sometimes you just gotta lock it in your hand, though. Yeah, 
You just got to prepare yourself. I'm going to take a week. I'm going to lock this bait in my hand. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to master it. I'm going to basically make it part of my repertoire and then go for it. And there's a lot of baits that I'll say, I never thought I'd ever throw one ever in my life. Yeah. I just don't fish enough to lock something in my hand for the week. Um, <laughs> Cause I only fish like once a week. Um, you got to change that. Yeah. Well, you'll find out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, some, someday that little girl's going to be playing soccer or hockey or gymnastics. And that's going to cut into your fishing time. I think she's going to be fishing. Uh, but uh, so when you're flipping a tube craw or tube, what is, are you a straight shank guy, EWG, ring EWG? What kind of setup do you like for that? Um, kind of depends on the depth I'm fishing. If I'm fishing shallow water, I'm literally kind of sticking like anywhere from eight foot all the way to, I mean, like the bank. Mm-hmm. I like to do more straight shank because, I mean, yep. it's more of a flipping pre- like presentation. But once I start leaving that eight foot line, I start going out a little bit deeper. I like going to EWG and just kind of playing around with that. I think the hookup percentage a lot better when you get deeper with it, where when that straight shank, you're just kind of trying to penetrate the grass more. So when you do set the hook, you have a lot heavier line, a lot bigger rod. Um, The light growing up in the shallow grass is going to be way more thicker than out deep. So, I mean, you can kind of play around with that, but... My big thing is if you're up shallow and you're flipping anything eight and less, the grass is always going to be thicker than out in that 10 to 18. So, I mean, hook varying from a straight shank to the EWG varies on what kind of grass I'm fishing. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, when you're flipping grass, uh, braid, floral, braid to floral, does that also depend on depth and thickness? or um, That one... Uh, for the most part, it depends on thickness or it depends on water clarity. Yeah. So if I'm fishing a really super clean lake, I'm going to switch the floral. If I'm not fishing a clean lake, it's more murky, more muddy. You know, I'll try and slide away with braid if I can. Do you ever mess? Do you flip with the connection knot ever? Yep. Uh, I use the the FG knot. Okay. And I've been using that now for about two years and. I will say it's really good. I've really kind of started adapting my entire fishing to it. You know, I won't go too far away from it anymore. But I have noticed there's a lot of times where you don't need it, where you can look at a lake and it's like, all right, it's chocolate brown. I don't need an FG knot here to use a bait. I can just flip straight floral or straight braid. But I will say if I'm going to a cleaner lake, I do personally like to do braid to floral. Yeah, that- but you also do like if it's really clean or like sparse, you'll also just go straight floral or um like down south here. So I'm gonna be going to Ozarks and this will be the second time or third time now, sorry, that I've been down to Ozarks. And I tried to actually flip these fish with braid and I couldn't get a bite for days. I think I went four or five days without even getting a bite. I turned around, I went back in these areas with just straight floral floral the next time and I started getting bites pretty consistently throughout the entire bay. So it kind of made me think that maybe these fish are seeing the line or they're starting to kind of feel it. And fish so down south are smarter than the ones up here. <laughs> so it made me kind of have to adapt down there, and it kind of made me start thinking about how I fish up north. I was like, anytime you go out of state, you're going to learn so much down south that when you come home, 
you're going to try to apply that in every way in every scenario you can. And there is a lot of times it'll help and there's a lot of times it'll hurt. So you have to know when to pick and choose on what you can and can't do up here. Yeah, for sure. There's uh when shatter present bass target horizontal baits so much better than they do uh, where we live normally. Like, like I said, you can get really dependent flipping a craw tube and throwing a Senko and flipping a jig around here, but there are certain times down South when they're on that shad, that's just the wrong deal. <laughs> oh, exactly. Those fish will be ever go the bank. in Minnesota. Like you can always catch them on a jig. Like, yeah, you can go sun up, sundown anywhere you go in Minnesota and catch them on a jig or catch them on a tube or a Senko or anything. And then you can go down south and fish for a week and never catch a fish on one. But you throw a jerkbait once and you'll catch 20 fish. Yeah. It's, it's very different. Yeah. Um, like the spinnerbait seems to be really situational up here. And it's like an all-year deal down south, it seems like. Um, uh, so, like I say, now we talked about kind of the summer, right? And then when does that start to change or when do you see the fish do something to, like, what do you do as the summer wanes on and what are you seeing the, 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 the bluegills and crappies doing and how do you adjust and where do you follow them? And so right after summer kind of starts going off, it starts getting that real late summertime beginning fall. I start watching the grass start to slowly die off a little bit up shallow. And for some reason, all of them panfish, all of them crappies, they like to come flooding back up shallow again. And it's kind of like the springtime where they just flood up into a bay, but they don't quite invest their whole way up in there. They'll just kind of flood up into the mouth of it or the entering points of the bays. And they'll start kind of pre-staging before going in. And it seems like it's a mass move up because when it happens, it happens all at once. You won't have like one school up shallow, one school out deep. You'll literally just get everything up shallow once. They'll be up there because what they start seeing is they got to get that food forage back on. They got to start packing up the weight on all the little bugs and everything they can before they go back out for the winter. So they'll start eating everything and anything up shallow. And of course, right behind them comes the bass. And when the bass start coming up, it's just an all-out food war for them. And that will last literally from the beginning of September. And it will get really good later in the season for October, like coming into October. Because they know this is crunch time for them. They got to fill up their gut before winter. They got to get as much protein in them and get all fed up. So that way they're ready to just sit idle and just relax in the cold water all winter. So... I'd say that fall time, you'll start seeing that transition. They'll start sitting up in the coontail a little bit more. They'll start sitting in, up even in some of the rice patches, the reed patches. You might get some in in the cabbage patches, and they'll just get a big ball of fish up there. And the bass will just basically hunger on the outside of that, and they'll just kind of wait for the same thing. Bluegill goes on a little adventure. He's going to get taken out by Billy the Bass, and that's the bass you usually want to target Sure. So when you're saying shallower, what, what kind of range are you talking about in the fall? I would say anywhere between five to 10 foot. Yeah. Like kind of mid right around there because in the fall, we'll get those weather fluctuations from hot to cold pretty quick. We'll get a warm day and then we'll get a cold day. So with that fluctuation, that five to 10 foot, they can at least sip out two, three feet and still be in stable water. 
because the first five feet of the water column is the only column that actually gets affected real bad by weather. So that's where they'll just kind of pull back and forth between that five to 10 foot range. <clears throat> yeah. So, so this is an interesting question from Matt. Um, why is fall so different down here or south from the north? Um, I think part of it is our definition. So their fall, right? Like their late fall gets to be pretty good fishing again, like going into winter. But when we're like having our good fall, right? We've already went through kind of our like icky period. Like to me, like that, I don't know, last week of August to maybe the first two weeks of September is kind of our funk. Don't you think? I mean, like that's when things get definitely kind of scrambled. They're scattered. They're some are shallow, some are deep, some are getting really deep. They're kind of like the, I mean, they're, they're all over the place. Um, and I think that's what you see, you know, like the elite series last year, that's when we were seeing like late September into early November, everything's longer in the South because they basically have a 12 month season and we have like a two month season. Um, so like what's two weeks uh, up here of our funk ends up being two months of funk for them down South, I think, give or take. Um, but yeah, so we, we snap out of that pretty quick because our water temperature drops so quick. It gets into the the low sixties after fifties and then, then fish, you know, they just, they're, they, they eat, right? That's what you're talking about. Um, that's why ours gets so good their fall fishing doesn't get good until we start to hit ice up and that's when their fall fishing gets good. Um, so that's my take on it. Um, so what do you, I mean, do you ever, so there's also to me in the fall, there's a, uh, a percentage of the fish that get even shallower than that. And really like to me, some of the biggest fish get even shallower in the fall, like on hardcover. Do you think that the forage is that a bait fish forage? Like, do you have any like any insight to what you think drives that? Like the fish to get on the wood, the fish to get on the docks, the fish to get on the pad stems uh, in the fall. So, the, what I think that kind of dials down to is those big fish are looking for the last easiest meal of the year. So, by them slow, like the bigger the fish are, they keep pushing bait up and up and up, and they keep kind of pushing them shallow because i mean fish can't walk on water here so as they keep pushing them up you'll get fish that'll hang to that hard cover the docks they'll hang around that area they're looking for that last meal and that's where we kind of target on trees and you'll get some rocks up shallow or you'll get some docks and you'll find that last big fish of the season sitting way up shallow i think they're really just kind of looking for that last meal of the year and trying to hope that, you know, there's one last crappie or one last sunfish hanging around the dock still. Because all our grass, once it starts dying, it dies pretty quick. Yeah, the shallow grass dies first, right? Yep. Um, I think part of that is, right, that is the re- the fish that do like to be shallow. Because there's definitely a population of fish that hang shallower in every lake um, in Minnesota, right? And I think what, what a lot of it is, is that the green grass shallow dies off um, and the wood, the docks uh, are the last things that they can, I don't know, take cover, right? They can feel protected. They can feel like they have an ambush point. And I think, uh, right. And then what bluegills that are still, or bullheads or whatever's hanging shallow, they no longer have grass to hide in. So they're going to gravitate towards that cover as well. So exactly. And that's kind of what I feel like is the last bit of fall, which would be your 
mid-October to late, like beginning of November. That'd be that kind of stretch up in there. Magical. My favorite time. Just oh, it's, it's about a two-week period, and it's magic. Yeah. When it goes down, it goes down for about two, three weeks. Uh, and it's my favorite time by far. And um, one thing I've noticed, so I'm probably three hours north of you. When our series starts happening here, I quickly start driving down the road heading towards you just to keep that window progressing for at least a month. Yeah, for sure. But it's uh, it, I will say it's a very magical window here in our state. Cool. Anything else you want to add largemouth wise going into the fall or things we didn't touch on? <clears throat> um, I'd say when it comes to spring, make sure you keep your baits. I mean, moderate size to smaller. These fish are coming coming off of that winter bite. So they're still kind of thinking small baits, plankton, you know, bugs. When you start progressing, don't be afraid to get into them bigger baits. Don't be afraid to start really upsizing those baits or playing with your weights fast, slow. And as fall comes, just get ready because they're willing to eat anything and everything. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Let's, uh, Great information so far. I think let's talk about the Arsenal prize pack. Take a little breather here. We'll tell you how you will we'll look what's inside the pack here. We'll talk about how you can win this for next week, and then we'll get into smallies. So up this week, presented by Arsenal, is this uh, this nice, uh, what do you call it? drawstring bag, which I use my drawstring bag. Where did I put it? Actually, this is my drawstring bag. This is the prize bag. I keep a lot of my GoPros and stuff in this. And like, 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 this is what goes in and out of my boat for like all my filming and my videos. Um, this is the prize pack. You'll get the unused drawstring bag. Um, so we got a nice Arsenal snapback cap. So that's in there. Um, we've got a. Uh, a rumble jig, which is a, a bladed jig, chatterbait style jig, um, and kind of a shad pattern, half ounce. Um, just in time to find out what you can win, Sycamore. Uh, and then we got kind of a crawdad, dirty pumpkin, half ounce rumble jig. Let's see what else we got in here. We've got a, uh, a classic knit beanie. Which is a nice fishing beanie like this uh, for, for for winter, spring, fall fishing. Can't go wrong with that. Uh, and then we've got it looks like without taking it out of the pack, this looks like an XL long sleeve sun shirt. So, and I'm pretty sure. Where did I go? I thought there was. Oh, there it is. Fell out. An Arsenal lighter. Logo lighter, which may not seem like a fishing thing, but um, you just not okay. I was like, Connor wasn't moving, I didn't know if he froze up or <laughs> no, but I'm still here. This is actually pretty handy for a few things. Uh, I use know, it all the time. I'd say, like, people use these for like touching up their braid knots, melting the ends. Uh, it can be good for like I've heard the tip like heating a Ned head hook for a Laztec yep. so that it threads better. Uh, what are things you like to use a lighter for in the boat? Well, my number one thing is I always like to use it for my FG knots. I like to singe up that little braid end, like you said. Outside of that, I like to heat up some of my uh, glue and really hot wax on some of my baits for my jigs or jig trailers, swim jigs, even my swim baits. I like to heat up the heads and get that bait on there nice and tight. Okay. 
outside of that, you know, you ever got a buddy that smokes a dart in the boat or anything else, you always got a lighter handy. There you go. Um, another big thing is you pull off a crankbait or you can't get your scissors in on that little eye ring and you're sitting there and you're fighting it, trying to really work on it. I always just take the lighter and just burn off that tag end and yeah. I won't have a problem with it. Can throw it in the box quick. Yeah, I heard somebody tell me, I think I was watching Bass U or something like that, and they said if you're reusing a flipping hook and you keep cutting this off with the scissors, you'll actually like put little scratches in the uh, the hook. Or and they said they'll burn the tag ends off their jigs and flipping hooks that they use a lot so that you never have to worry about that affecting your line. Well, I will say, I mean, a lot of times when I use like a straight chain hook, like the Greg Hagney flipping hook, mm-hmm. um, I like to do a snell knot. Yep. And I've noticed that it's really hard to use the scissors to cut off a snell knot because you're wrapping around the actual shank of the hook. So, I mean, sitting there trying to scratch it off or scrape it off with the scissors, I mean, it works, but it's not ideal. So yeah, I will that's, say that's a great point for where the lighter comes in and you can was, get that line off. And Yep, the straight shank because he says when you go do that, you're going to end up marring that uh, that uh, that and potentially scratching your hook, which could lead to a line failure. Plus, yep. then you're, you're just dulling up your scissors, right? And then your scissors ain't going to cut braid and line like you want it to. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so there's all the reasons to have a lighter in the boat. Uh, weld it, welding plastics back together in a pinch. When you got the one, that color that you really in your head thinks the only one they're biting. Uh, emergency rod tip repairs. We could go on. Like, they're handy. Um, so how you win this, uh, leave a comment on the replay. So after this video goes up, uh, which will be right after you should be able to leave a comment or anytime tomorrow or between next week, there'll be a drawing next week. We'll do the same thing. Uh, if you can, any comment will work, but maybe go on the Arsenal website and look at the, the, uh, the soft plastics, like the, the, the cross, what do they call it? The battle cross, the battle bugs, salt bugs, oh, the salt bugs, yep, and, the salt uh, bugs, the boom sticks, the tactical yep. minnows. Look at the, let's look at the assault bugs and tell Leave a comment what color Dan should add that you feel he's missing in the assault bugs. All right. That's a good one. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, any comment work, ideally, go look at the assault bugs and let us know what color you'd like to see in the assault bugs. Um, and for those that don't know what the assault bugs look like, right? They look like these. Um, I did a big unboxing video earlier this week, but they're basically a, uh, a hybrid kind of beaver cross style bait uh and i kind of like how i like to have the the rings of a d-bomb on top and kind of the ribs of a beaver on the bottom um and it, where do you like to use these or when what, what's what's your favorite uh method for these my favorite method well you know the best part is they are a two-on-one bait yeah. you know you start off throwing them texas rig you can flip them around once the top end starts ripping through which that'll be probably five six seven fish because these are actually a lot more durable plastic than your most reaction innervation or beaver style baits. They've got a lot more build to them, which one thing that really drew me to them. I mean, you try and pull that thing apart, Rich, and you can just tell it's made durable. For sure. That's actually, I do a lot with my plastics, right? Like what you're talking about is like, I keep like, you know, like you buy your deli meat in like that little plastic tub, right? Lid. So, like, if I'm flipping a lot with a bug like this, or whether it's a bee or a D-bomb, but, you know, whatever, uh, when the head wears out, I don't just throw them away. I throw them in that tub, and yep. then 
I clip it off and I use those as a jig trailer. So that's a good exactly. thing. <laughs> and then that jig trailer will last you another 10, 12, maybe even 15 fish. And by the time you look at the expense you just did on one bait, I mean, it's hard to beat. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a, it's a pretty good uh, on a flipping jig, on a football jig. Uh, works as a, a swim jig trailer. There's a, That's got good action for all of those. Um, so, yeah, not live comments, but in the replay comments in the actual YouTube video, that's how you get into this. And then you can be winners like Tom Mix and Wyatt were earlier this tonight so there you go um let's start talking brownfish that's just, oh, i mean my. now you're gonna see do you see just connor like perk up a little bit we're talking about Woo. yeah here we go hey for those of you that haven't hit the thumbs up or shared this on facebook or youtube we're about to talk brownfish so now is the time to make sure we get your friends in here to learn well maybe i don't know how much i want to let slide now but you got to give a little something. I mean, right, people have a few for an hour now. They, they want to learn something about brownfish. I mean, they got a special place in my heart. So, all right. So, starting. So, I guess high level. Um, what change? Like, what are the forage you're concentrating on, and how does that differ from largemouth? So now, are we talking here in state, or are we talking here out of state? Yes. Yes, to <laughs> All right. Well, here in state, in Minnesota, I will say the number one forage that I've seen through the multiple lakes that I have fished has been perch. Okay. Um, for some reason, that just seems to be their go-to. It's like their candy. Crayfish is very well number two. You know, and I will stand by that. Crayfish, I mean, depending on if you go to Mille Lacs, I will say crayfish is number one because as the easiest forage for them, there's so many crayfish in that lake that, you know, that's what they're trying to eat constantly. But now if you start traveling, say, north, we go up to Leech Lake, we go up to Woman, Whitefish, Gull Lake, any of the lakes kind of up by me, these fish are really keyed in and they're really focused in on perch. You know, we don't have that crazy number of crayfish that Mille Lacs does, so... They really lock in on an actual bait fish, which means that these smallmouth like to move 10 times more than those Malax fish. Sure. So there's a lot of times any of the lakes up by us, we'll pull up to a point, we'll catch four or five smallmouth, we'll come back two days later, and they will be about a half mile down the lake. They just immediately, they're just following just the bait and only the bait. So if you find a good spot and you think it's a good spot, be ready to be disappointed because they're not following something that's on the bottom and moves slow. They're following a bait that's actually going to just get up and leave because they're scared of being eaten. So, yeah. I mean, I will say it is a chasing fish. Yeah. And I think, I think there's like bands, right? Like we're talking about, like they, it, it's really lake dependent more so than largemouth. Like, Oh, hands I down. Think like, has a bunch of smelt so that's going to be the driving indicator um like i think i mean there's different lakes that have like rainbow emerald sh emerald shiners rainbow smelt uh what what does pokegama have that's weird um, we got smelt up in pokegama is that smelt is the big one yeah um so there's also like so each lake can have its own little intricacies what it does with bait um so you just have to be i think hyper aware and do your research on a smallmouth lake, uh, you know, dig up the DNR reports, right. And find out what is going on because that is a big deal. 
Um, and then like the river, the shatter, a big deal. I mean, perch yep. exists in the river too, but uh, you know, and, and they do play a factor. Um, but shad are big. And when you go down south, like you said, shad is a big thing. Uh, do you ever see tulipy being a thing for smallies? Definitely, hands down. Okay. You know, you won't see it as much as them chasing perch or chasing smelt or stuff like that. Yeah. But you will see the occasional group of smallmouth that are a bigger high class fish chasing a small school of tulipies or even baby whitefish around. So you will see that. I mean, I've caught some in practice before, and you can see that they've got a nine-inch tulipy choked down their throat somehow. And you just wonder how. Like, how do I replicate this? But I will say, when you try and break down a perch to a tulipy, that perch might move a half mile. That tulipy will move four miles. That fish never stops swimming. So. In tournaments, be careful of tulipy chasers is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of one of those spur of the moments like you can choose. I mean, tulipies like to hang around basins, and they really like to cruise up and down the basin lines. So you can go side scan all you want, and you can find a school of tulipy, and you might find some smallmouth hanging out by them. But now the question is, is it the feeding window? Because if it's not the feeding window, you're probably going to waste a lot of time chasing them fish when they might have already choked down that one big meal for the week. So right, it's not a typical thing that we like to do up here, but there are very small windows that when we can do it, and you'll catch monster fish doing it. What about like Cisco? Is that a thing? You see that? Um, I've seen a few in a couple lakes up here, not too many. Um, it's not a real big thing up here that I really key in on. I mean, anytime I really kind of lock in on my tulipies, they're they got to be that seven inch to twelve inch range. If they get any bigger than that, then you know the smallmouth just kind of lose interest. They can't choke down that eighteen inch tulipy or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so I think we're talking about like in general, right? Perch is a big deal as a as a blanket statement. Every lake yep. has intricacies. Um, in general, uh, some lakes, the crayfish will be, right? So that's the biggest thing you're saying is, like, you need to determine whether this is a baitfish lake or a crayfish lake. Like, that Correct. would be step Okay. And usually the big thing when I start dividing whether a lake is going to be a bait fishery or if it's going to be a crayfish fishery is that I pull up and I'll look at the DNR report. That's always the first thing I do before I even fish a lake. Look at the DNR report, and I kind of try and guess what, kind of species i have in the lake if i do have smallmouth or if i don't and then i start looking at the numbers of how many perch are actually in the lake if i have a very low number of perch and i don't have a very big weed source in the lake i start kind of hovering towards that this is going to be a crayfish eaten kind of lake something more mm-hmm. towards the bottom and i'll start kind of plunking around that i'll start dropping an aquaview camera down on the rocks and slowly dragging it around seeing if i can see an abundance of crayfish or not if i can't Then I'll start going to the grass lines and I'll even drop the camera through the grass lines and dragging it through. Because, I mean, DNR reports aren't always accurate, so you can't be 100%, but they are a great way to get that foot in the door. Right. And they're not necessarily going to tell you what the... I mean, they'll tell you what some of the bait fish and forage is, but they're not going to tell you what the crayfish population typically is in a... No. Yeah. Not up here. Yeah. Okay. So where do you like... I mean, let's... uh, 
So I think we've agreed that like the perch, the forage-based smallmouth are the majority, right, in Minnesota. Uh, and that will apply more countrywide probably uh, with yep. shad like that. So where do you start in the spring pre-spawn for forage chasing smallies? So what do you look for? how do you do that? In the spring, I usually will start looking at areas that smallmouth will potentially want to pull up to spawn. So if I'm looking at a big shelf that pulls up out of a basin, and it's got a nice big 10-foot, 9-foot flat line. So you got a big flat right here. And on top of that flat, when it goes up into that 4-foot, 5-foot, even 7-foot line, you start getting more rock clusters, that gravel bottom. You'll start getting like a staging area for spawn off the spawn. Usually what I'll do is I'll step off of that gravel bar and I'll start kind of fishing that flat. Because these smallmouth, when they start pulling up, perch don't run to the back of the bay like the sunfish and the crappies. They kind of like to pull up, and their biggest thing is sitting in sandgrass. And sandgrass is really hard to see on electronics right. unless you have that keen eye for it or you've got a lot of it. But these fish like to pull up, and they like to start spawning in sandgrass, and that's the perch anyways. But perch will spawn actually the same time that smallmouth spawn. So it's kind of like a, a hit or miss on that. But when those fish start spawning, the smallmouth kind of just ignore them and they start just protecting the beds and they just, whatever comes near a bed, they're going to eat. But targeting them on pre-spawn, I literally start looking for the flats that are the pull-up stages and I start kind of looking for trenches or any kind of rock turn turning into a spawning area, any kind of rock basin that might come out of the deep pulling up in. I'm looking for the highway in between their spawn and their wintering point. So at that point, I'll start throwing jerk baits, swim baits, and I'll start just kind of giving single key baits hanging out around because I want to see if those fish are willing to react to just a single bait. If they're not, I'll start going to those big profiles like the Minnesota rig, kind of giving that big flash, trying to get their attention, see if they're willing to come up. But that's never a guarantee. So are you mostly reaction baits for pre-spawn or do you to like find them? Or... Pre-spawn, I like to cover a lot of water. You know, I will give myself 10 areas. I like to cover a lot of water through them 10 areas. And if nothing turns up, then I turn around and I start actually trying to break down if these fish aren't sitting in these areas, maybe I'm moving too fast. So I have to take that big deep breath and go back through some of these areas, maybe slow down, throw a tube, Throw rig. Yep, the Ned. And start kind of really breaking down the water and breaking down the area. Right. Um, so then I mean, typically if there's a good population of Somalis in a lake, one of them will at least show themselves to a reaction bait at some point. You may not catch them, but you're probably gonna see one. Um, right. So um, correct. Um so then you get into the spawn and then you've got the shallow fish that are super easy to catch. They're right. I mean, obviously they get hard if there's a lot of pressure, but like if it's not a pressure, like they're, they're it's pretty straightforward. You just put anything near them. Yep. Uh, I think I'd have seen some images where you will, uh, you'll scan for deeper beds with your electronics. Um, yep. I will not- definitely take my time. You know, I mean, a lot of people like to go out and use cones and sight fish these fish and which is great. I mean, it's a fun time. It's a blast. 
I mean, try not to beat up on them too hard. I mean, realize you're trying to save your lake, not kill it, but go have fun. I'm not saying don't fish for these fish. They are a blast. Just be mindful. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, outside of that, I like to target the fish that, you know, I can't see with the visual eye or I can't see with a cone or stuff like that. So I will start side scanning with my Solix units. And, you know, I'm starting to find beds that are out in 10 foot, 12 foot, 15 foot. I found some as deep as 18 feet. And these are fish that you're not going to ever see to the naked eye in some of the lakes we're at. So when I start fishing for these fish, they act like they've never seen a bait before. Right. So, I mean, you have fun with those fish a few times, and then you kind of just enjoy the fact of you learned how to look for them on your side scan. You know what you're looking at, and it feels like super joyful and replenished that, you know what? All right, I just saw this bed on my side scan. I dropped my troll motor. I saw my 360, and it said the bed's right there. I made two casts at it, and I caught a four-and-a-half, five-pound fish out in 18 feet of water on a bed. Yeah, It's just a big joy, like that you're moving along with progression, and you're being able to stay on top of these fish no matter what. Yeah. Do you ever see the fish, or are you just seeing the shape of the bed? On a I see. So there's a lot of times I'll see the bed, and then I'll have to guess where the fish is because there's sometimes the rock might be big enough that the fish is literally snugged up to the rock. So you can't quite see it. But then there are other times that you will see the fish. You'll see the little white dot just hanging on the edge of the bed. And then the next time the image comes through, you'll see him on the other side of the bed. So you will see the fish throughout, I mean, moving around. But there are some occasions where it's tucked up against that rock so tight you can't see it. Right. <clears throat> or he's just tugged to the bottom really hard or whatever. Yep. Um, so is rock a common denominator for those deeper fish? Or I would say rock, shell? gravel, even shell beds. Okay. You know, we have quite a few shell beds in Minnesota, and a lot of people don't ever really fish, fish them. Sure. Um, you ever, uh, Punch Fishing wants to know, do you ever mess around with cranks for pre-spawn smallies, or is it just a swim bait, jerk bait deal for you? Um, personally for me, I really just stick with my jerk bait, my swim baits. You know, a lot of times these fish aren't really wanting to come off the bottoms and pre-spawn for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're really kind of starting looking up and they're looking forward. Um, I don't really get too much time to run a square bill in the shallower water because all our zebra mussels up here, like they really tink up our line and steal our crankbaits a lot of times. So I just like to keep it off the bottom personally at that time of year. All right. Um, so <clears throat> I do have these two hats that I don't know. What, which one do you think makes a better visor? Hmm. Um, mm, dang. I... So there, here's the thing. I'll, I'll, I've already made up my mind. So like, this I, mean, is... I, I think that's going to be the better visor. If you're going to when. I have a pretty big head, and so like this hat sits pretty high on my head, topped out. It really is these Richardson 112s are about the only ones that I can actually wear on my head without feeling like it's stretched over my head and like three inches off the top of my ears. So I okay. think I'll keep this one as my dress hat. <laughs> Looking smooth. It'll be the one with the axe, I think. Uh, and so while you explain what you do 
Um, coming out of spawn, I'm going to give this one a little bit of a trim and see if we can shape our next visor. Okay. So coming out of spawn, I usually start playing the few factors of are we chasing fur cheaters or are we going to be chasing crayfish eaters? Because, I mean, anytime these fish are coming off the beds, they're going to be super tired. They're going to be wore out. They just want to literally go out, lay on the bottom for a couple days, rest, get some energy back in them. But when that post-spawn turns around and they start getting that feed bag on, that's when these fish are going to get up and start actually chasing, and they're going to start kind of targeting what they want to eat. So if I'm looking at fish that want to chase perch, I'm going to still keep myself shallow because the perch spawn's still going on. They're still kind of spawning around the sand grass and the stank grass is like we like to call it up here. So they're, the perch are going to linger longer than the smalls in your experience. They are. Yep. So they'll linger, I'd say, about the beginning of July. They'll still be kind of lingering in that grass because they're still trying to protect their young. They're still trying to watch over the eggs and all that kind of stuff. So them smallmouth are going to be up there. I mean, anywhere from five foot out to 10 foot chasing. I mean, those little tiny perch, and they're going to be trying to eat as much as they can because they just got done spawning. So that'll be the first step is trying to depict whether I'm chasing perch eaters or crayfish eaters outside of them. If I'm going to a crayfish eating body of water, I'm going to start looking at some of the bigger boulders that have, I'd say like tons of jumbo rocks all just compiled together where crayfish can pop in and out. You're going to have a high population of crayfish instead of like a sand gravel area. So I'll start kind of really looking around, side scanning all over the lake, looking for that eight to 10 foot range that even out to, was that a yamaka? <laughs> Man, that, I don't know. This was a little weird because I've never started with a fitted hat, which means I had no hole in the back to start with. So interesting. So, yeah, I'm really looking for kind of like big chunk rock, big boulders. You know, I want these crayfish to be able to hide and these smallmouth are going to start kind of pulling around those areas and really kind of hungering on bigger boulders, bigger rocks right after pulse spawn. But another big thing is these fish don't want to get too crazy. They don't want to be chasing super hard. So you're not going to be able to go out there and rip a jerk bait at 100 miles an hour. You're going to have to give it some time, let it sit there, let it soak in the water. Same with a tube or same with a jig. You're going to have to slow roll it, kind of slowly pull across the bottom and wait for these fish to kind of react to it. Um, outside of that, you got to realize you're going to be probably looking at lake switches in that time. So the water temps are going to start rolling where the bottom of the lake and the top of the lake are going to flip. So you're going to get that murky water about that time of year where it's going to flip over and roll over on you. Sure. So the clarity is not going to be as good. So you might have to let it soak a little longer than you thought. But when it kind of really breaks down to it, I'm looking for either grassy areas for perch that are anywhere from four foot to 12 foot, anywhere in there. And I'm kind of looking for if these fish are moving in aggressively or if they're not. And they got to be pulling literally right off of their spawning flat. I'm not going down the flat looking. I'm literally coming straight outside the flat and looking in the grass. And then if you're looking for crayfish eaters, I'm literally going to do the same thing. I'm going to pull right off their spawning flat 
and I'm going to start looking around that spawning flat where there's any bit of deeper gravel, deeper rock that's got bigger chunk rock that the crayfish can hide in. And I'm just going to start soaking a jig through there or a Ned rig or even a tube. For sure. So depth is all relative to the lake and the clarity and how fish deep them fish are spawning to begin with. Correct. Um, so you said like, basically you're looking for the, the, the first heavy cover, right? So on yep. like a lake like Mille Lacs, it's going to be boulders Correct. Uh, on a lake like Okegama or some of those lakes, it's going to be a grass. Yep. So like with Pacagama, you're going to see a lot more fish that want to travel out in the deeper basin. So these fish are going to literally be sitting on the edge of either a flat that has a lot of sand grass. Okay. Mm -hmm. Nice. I like the modification. So I was just showing them a picture. Don't, don't mind me. <laughs> um, so these fish are going to be kind of like perch on Pacagama, like the hunger on flats leading out to the deeper basins because they start pulling up from them that deeper water to spawn. So you'll get fish like that. And then, of course, being that Pacagma is a very smelt Ford's Lake, they're going to hunger on perch only for probably, I'd say, a week or two, and then they're going to start chasing, getting back out in them deep basins and chasing that smelt around. But now if we kind of roll over into, like, Malax Lake, them fish are going to go up. They're going to spawn in four feet, five feet, even seven, eight feet of water. And they're going to start pulling out to that 10 foot, uh, 12 foot. And they're going to start really looking for that crayfish forage out there in all them heavy chunk rock and kind of boulders out there. So that's kind of where I'll start kind of dividing things down between what lake I'm fishing. Right. So depending on the lake and the forage, you're going to make decisions on how, like how long they're going to linger on that initial, um, forage right like they may jump forages pretty quick if they have more options on certain lakes correct i mean i wouldn't sit and eat the same thing every day if i had a piece of candy sitting over there right um basically some lakes i mean like perch do roam but they're not going to roam as hard as smelt or no these other things so uh you really need to consider that. Take that into consideration in the lakes that you're fishing. What are those forages and what are you targeting? Right. Uh, and uh, like, so, you know, I mean, what, I mean, like you got to think, like, you know, if you're in Oneida or Champlain or Lake Sinclair, like what are these forages? And that's going to help you understand, like, I mean, smallies are nomadic, but how nomadic are your smallies based on your forage is what you're kind of saying. Exactly. I mean, I can personally say I travel over to Surgeon Bay quite a bit now. And from home here to Surgeon Bay, it's totally different. I mean, perch, they love perch out there. Mm -hmm. the crayfish is all right to them. But what they really care about is that goby. Right. They want that roundhead goby more than anything. So seeing how a goby actually fits in the program out there versus coming back here, it's night and day difference. So make sure you really understand your forage and understand what these fish are eating in these lakes. And you can actually watch a pattern progress from spring to summer to fall back into winter. And then the cycle restarts again 
and you can start expanding on areas and locations that you start finding forage that keeps pulling through and you can really advance your fishing for sure what have, what have you noticed about gobies are they are they they move around are they home by, like what what kind of what how much level of movement do gobies have tons um i would i would have to say if you really break it down a goby is literally a perch and a crawfish mixed together it's a minnow that does not want to swim away from rocks but it will swim away if it has to right uh, it's more aggressively it's twice as fast as a crawfish so they're constantly moving but they won't actually come about a, they won't even come six inches off the bottom i mean the farthest i've ever seen a goby come off the bottom i think was like nine or ten inches and that was on an old YouTube video I watched that Edwin Evers was drop shotting out in 40 feet of water when he got one. And I mean, these things are, they're very different than anything we fish here because just how they swim, how they react, how they move in the water isn't like anything we have here. I mean, I have one other fish in our state that can replicate a goby, but I've only known it to be found in, I think, three lakes that I've searched. Like some kind of sculpin or something like that? or Correct, yep. And I mean, they're in Mille Lacs, but the weird thing is there's not a heavy number of them. Right. So there's not a real kind of like you can target just that one thing. I mean, not for your average angler that just wants to go out and, you know, catch fish and just target as big as fish. She's not going to go out and target something that's very rare in the lake. He's going to look for that thing that really wants to chase, say, perch or chase crawfish. That'd be his best chance of going out catching numbers of fish or even potentially his new PB. Right. I mean, obviously, if one swims in front of his face, he's going to eat it, but he's not going to, he or she's not going to dictate their behavior based on the minority forage, right? So, Correct. Uh, ben wants to know when you're, when he's, when you're taking him fishing. Oh, if the time's right and the schedule lines up. <laughs> Um, so we haven't talked much about baits other than like pre-spawn. What kind of like bait progression do you go through for your smallies, at least in Minnesota, obviously traveling that would change, but like for the people that are in natural lakes in Minnesota, Wisconsin, what, what are some of your favorite baits through the seasons? So anytime I'm lining up in the spring, my number one baits, jerk bait. Okay. I, I won't put it down anytime in the spring. So I literally will only throw two baits all spring. I don't put anything else on my deck and it'll literally be a jerk bait and a small swim bait. That is it. And all I'm doing is I'm chasing bait chasers because it seems to be, those are the more healthy fish, the more active fish, the more aggressive fish, you know, they got to get up, they got to move, they got to chase their bait. So that's what I like to do anyways. You know, I, I get really crazy over a jerk bait bite when you can go out there, slap it two times and the rod turns over twice as hard. Um, when I started leaving that and I start going into my spawning time, you know, I'll go to a tube, a small, small football head. Um, I'll even do a small swim bait and I'll just swim it past the bed, drop shots, Ned rigs, stuff like that for bed fish. And then when I start getting out of that and I start going to my post spawn, I start kind of getting back into that jerk baits, but I just got to slow them down a little bit. I'll get back into my swim baits, you know, my a rigs. Minnesota rigs, stuff like that. Or I'll even go into like my hair jigs and I'll really slow roll a hair jig around. Uh, one that I 
don't use a lot, but you know, I probably should is a fluke. You know, I know fish really get crazy over a fluke here in especially, the States, especially on the smelt lakes. Yep. Smelt lakes are even the really hard perch chasing lakes. They really start keying in on that. When I start kind of progressing from there and bombing into summer patterns, you know, I start kind of getting out, throwing a tube more, cracking it around. I'm not throwing a tube. I'm back at that swim bait. I will throw a jerk bait, but I usually kind of have to see what the fish are doing. Not mm -hmm. very often am I able to throw a jerk bait and get a very, I'd say, consistent bite on it during the summer. Mm -hmm. I can get fish to react, but it's a very hit or miss thing. Um, a hair jig is always great. Ned rig, stuff like that. Football jigs during the summer. Uh, crank baits even during the summer. Start pounding them on some rocks. Get them free of that. Those are all things that are great during that time of year. Yeah. And then, oh, go ahead. Then when fall kind of rolls around, you know, I, I really slow down. I don't throw a lot of crazy baits. You know, I, I start putting the hair jig rod away. I start putting some of them jerk bait rods away, stuff like that. And I really start locking in on like an A rig or a Minnesota rig, or I'll start locking in with a football head and keeping that thing on the bottom. Cause it's starting to slow down. These fish aren't getting as aggressive and they're starting to really just kind of lay towards the bottom. So that a tube i'll still crack the tube but i won't get as aggressive with my cracking on it and then i'll even slow down into like a drop shot or like a ned rig and really just kind of slow down my whole presence yeah uh a hair jig relating that to forage what do you think you're like what, what do you align that with forage like what do you think you're mimicking or what what when it comes like what, what when is your choice to go with the hair jig for smallies and what do you think you're well we have two things that happen here in the spring and one that's the perch spawn which you have tiny little perch like two inch three inch perch roaming around and then we have what we call the mayfly hatch which is of course a horrible time because fish just quit eating well they don't quit eating they're eating artificial baits <laughs> true well, they basically just lock up. Man, I don't even know how to explain that. They lock into the mayflies. That's the problem. Right? I know. I mean, even trying, I've tried fly fishing them, and they still won't eat it. But outside of that, uh, basically what I think a hair jig kind of really mimics is, you know, if you're using the right colors and stuff like that, you can really mimic a leech in the water if you're using just like a black, black and purple. If you kind of get away from that, you start getting to like your olive green, your uh, – your light green, mayo green, all that kind of stuff. You can start kind of playing around with like uh, the mayflies and stuff like that. You might get a light brown or anything like that. And then when you, even with them greens, I mean, maybe a baby perch, throw a little, you know, a couple strands of orange in there. You might get that little perch look to it. But biggest thing is it's, it's a constantly moving bait that they can't quite figure out because it's slow. It doesn't give off a lot of presence. And I think they're just more curious about it than anything. I don't really think they lock it in as, oh, it's a mayfly or it's a, a leech or it's a minnow. They just lock it in as, okay, that's something I don't see too often. I want to check it out. And they just kind of go up and venture and then they react to it. Yeah. So you're saying you think we're tapping into this Smalley's natural curiosity. And since they can't grab it with their fins or their fingers, they're going to put it in their mouth quick and see what it is. And you got them. <laughs> and that's kind of what i think it is with that um you know 
I've heard a lot of people talk really great about like hydroways and stuff like that. You know, the curiosity of smallmouth. Oh, these fish aren't biting or nothing. They turn on a hydrowave and they turn that volume up to 10 and also the fish turned active and they got real curious. You know, I think that's another step that we might be looking into that smallmouth are genuinely just curious about everything, whether it's your boat, your troll motor, your bait. They don't just see it and they just dart off and they never come back. They think about it for a little bit and they're like, okay, what is this? Like what's going on? And then they kind of leave. They don't really have a natural predator other than a big Northern or a muskie. Mm-hmm. So we don't have too many lakes with all those, but these fish are, I mean, the most curious fish you'll ever find. Sure. So we talked about the Minnesota rig a little bit. Um, so it's a basically an umbrella rig of sorts. Um, here's one example. Probably one of the more popular ones is the hog farmer. Um Ryan wants to know, like, how good is the Minnesota rig, and do you think it's worth it, or maybe, what, like, maybe just talk a little bit about your experience and what you think um, of the Minnesota rig. Oh, is he grabbing one? I don't know. Didn't say anything. This is exciting. So this is the Minnesota rig, um, and it's basically a one-wire umbrella rig with blades. Uh, Connor's coming back with his. Is this the one you use, or do you have a different version? Or well, I use two versions. I use the gold bladed one, or I use my silver blades. But is that like the hog farmer, or do you use a different one? Correct. This is yep the hog farmer's rig. Why not? This is the only rig I'll use for a rigs or any sorts. Uh, I only run with a or, uh, with the hog farmers. Why not? They're built well. They're, I mean, very durable. You know. I've never had a problem ever come through them. They're not expensive. They're not, I mean, cheap. So, I mean, it's in that mid-range. You're not breaking the bank. But, you know, I'm paying for quality, which when it comes to fishing, I'll happily pay quality over quantity. So, but. You know, like these things, you don't lose these in Minnesota. Like, (laughs) uh, not very often anyways. You know, I think I've lost two of these ever in our state. And that was one, my own stupidity, you know, got a wind knot that I could cast it out and broke the line, sent it. And then the other time I wasn't paying attention. I let it hit bottom and I snagged it into a big rock and I just couldn't get it back. So, but outside of that, we don't have like floating docks that have all the cables and stuff like that, where you're going to snag up constantly, or we're not throwing this over big brush piles or thickets and all that kind of stuff. So we're typically not going to lose these as much up here than we are down south. But I will say stuff happens. But one thing I will say when we start kind of like poking around A-Rigs, Minnesota rigs, you know, and I actually tested this theory with another Minnesota hammer we have, uh, Brian Bankston. He likes to throw his A-Rig with dummies like a, on it. Like a little mini toy hammer maybe. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> but he likes to throw his with a bunch of dummies on it. So he'll do less spinners and have a couple dummies of baits and then one with a hook. And we kind of put it to the test one day. I think those fish just literally key in on too much. Like there's three different baits that all look the same, but yet one hangs back further. So them fish are still keying in on that one bait, but they might still grab at the one without the hook or they might grab with one without the hook again. 
and then finally we'll get the one with the hook. It's almost like what we used to call the shock and awe factor. Right. They get shocked by it because it's so cool looking, but then they don't really go for it. And then the odds when they finally do go for it with when you finally put just one plain hook on the back. So you have your one swim bait on the back. They can lock in on just this and this alone. They're not going to come up and nip the blades. They're not going to grab that. They're literally going to key on just the number one bait here. And I've noticed I've caught twice as many fish than people throwing a single hook a rig with just a single bait presence than just throwing it with just dummies on the back. And I think it's just personally, they're just locking in on one bait instead of trying to lock in on three. So that's my personal preference. But sure. So do you use this, the Minnesota rig outside of Minnesota? Or when you go to a place like the Ozarks, will you use a three hook rig or five hook rig? Or I'll still stick with my one hook rig. Okay. You know, I mean, I really want those fish to just lock in on one bait. I don't want them to get confused and see three baits and start slapping at it. Um, I haven't traveled too many times out of state. I mean, I know that the five bait approach, the three bait approach down there works really well. And I know those fish really hunger in and key in on, you know, chasing shad and actually schooling up on shads. So I know it's going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's a mess, ain't it? <laughs> I threw a little bit of on Wilson in October but, or November. But. Did you catch him? A lot of white bass, a few largies. I don't. I wasn't really on them, but yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so if you guys want to try the Minnesota rig, it is available at. Uh, so when do you use the gold versus the uh, the silver? So when I start kind of playing around with that, you know, I start looking at the fish that I'm chasing. So perch. Um, Anytime there's golden shiners, emerald shiners, anything like that, or even smelt, I like to start rolling up with that gold tinge a little bit more. Um, I start really looking at just that minnow forge, which ones I'm going to be chasing. But if I notice that they're just really not keying in on that gold, they're not kind of whacking at it. And I mean, you can see them on first, like, say, 360 or live scope or even visually see that fish chase it to the boat, but it doesn't commit. If I see it two, three times... I might then switch to silver and just see if that's that curiosity flare that might be enough to get that fish to ignite. Okay. So I won't say one's better than the other. They both serve a time and place, but it's literally trial and error. Yeah. So you're going to make your initial decision based on forage yep. and then the fish tell you whether you need to change or not. Correct. And then, uh, like just a like what weight head what do you use for your single head and your swim bait typically um well that all depends on the depth that i want to fish uh if i'm trying to reach a deeper depth of course i'm going to go up to like a three eighth ounce maybe even a half ounce uh half ounce is more towards that late fall season because you're trying to get it close to the bottom and keep it close to that lower depth but as i'd say mid spring to end of summer I'd say I probably have a one eighth ounce or even a three eighth ounce on it. 90% of the time. Okay. So pretty light. Okay. Yep. Um, yeah. So if you guys want to check that out, you can find it on Omnia fishing. Um, you can use my code hella bass spring 15 and you know, it'll bring it down from almost $30 to like $25 and you can save a few bucks and try it out. Um, and then your swim bait, I assume you kind of change up based on, you know, that same thing forage, right? So you're going to, yep. Nope. Change your your uh... 
All right. Uh, so interesting question from Matt back to kind of the jerk baits. Do you play around with size, uh, you know, pre-spawn versus post-spawn versus summer and fall? Or do you, what is your kind of like jerk bait of choice for smallies? And do you change that up? Um, the only time I really start changing that up is when I can visually see that these fish are chasing smaller bait fish. So if I say I hook into a smallmouth and it starts puking up two inch, three inch perch all over the place, and you can progressively see that all over the water, then I will start downsizing to a smaller jerk bait and I will start playing around with sizes there. But the only times I really start playing with my size of jerk bait is only when I'm playing with my depths. So I'll start playing with that three to eight foot diver down to that, like the vision one ten plus one, or I'll get down to like the plus two later in the year and I'll start playing with a deeper jerk bait, but I won't really change the length of the bait because you know, these fish are going to eat it off a of reaction. Mm-hmm. But if I go to, let's say Malax here and I start snapping a full vision one ten, and they're not really eating it. And then I downsize once and I catch a fish and it's puking up tiny perch all over the place. I'm going to keep that bait as small as I can. And I might even try and downsize it again to see if I can't pick up more bites. Okay, cool. Uh, we're kind of going to more rapid fire now. Uh, so if you played around with the dark sleeper thoughts on the dark sleeper, it's a great bait. It has the time and place. Um, it really can mimic a goby very well. You know, out in Surgeon Bay, these guys are really starting to kick in on it, and they're really starting to play with it, and they really mimic well out there over here in the state, like over here in Minnesota. I mean, we have scalping in certain lakes, so, you know, it really mimics that thing to a T. Sure. Outside of that, it kind of plays around as a rock bass. I mean, it looks like a little rock bass kind of approach on like a bedfish or even just kind of approach on some of these smallies areas. Uh, some people complain about the hookups. Any issues for you or any tips for hookups? You know, I've not really had too bad of a hookup ratio with it. I will say you don't want to have a super heavy-duty rod. So, I mean, more of that medium-heavy rod. Um, I noticed anytime I played with it on braid or anything to do with braid, I was missing fish because I think I was pulling it out of their mouth too fast. Um, I started kind of just doing just straight floral with this bait. So 12-pound, 50-pound floral, and it was kind of – a sweeping action instead of like an aggressive hook set. So I'm not trying to kill the fish, but I'm trying to just sweep into it really hard. So maybe like how you'd a finesse football jig type setup. Yep. Yep. Cool. <clears throat> hey, thanks, Sean. Appreciate it. Uh, that's awesome. Um, he says, thanks for the great guest. Uh, Connor sharing a lot of uh, intricate knowledge. Uh, let's see here. Um, spinner baits. You playing with spinner baits for smallies at all? Um, I don't play too much with spinnerbaits or smallmouth. You know, it's kind of a, an older my, an older man wise tale. You know, they say it was the golden thing back in the day, but I know it has a time and place. Uh, when these fish are really chasing bait hard, you know, when it's really windy, a spinnerbait can be really good. You can catch a lot of fish, but we don't get too many days where it's super windy here and we can go sit out in the middle of our lakes here and actually be able to throw a bait. We normally just kind of tuck up out of the wind and go try and hide. Should have been throwing up a kegma then in the champ tour. That's where the <laughs> Avery was playing a big part for me. I'm was not windy? kidding. Was it this windy? Up? Same sure. one. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like for you, the Minnesota rig is probably takes the place of the spinnerbait. 
for for me personally, yes, uh, it gives off a bigger profile, so it's a little easier for him to see. You know, I don't know why. I just when it comes to smallmouth and skirted baits, I kind of stare away from them. Like anytime it's like a chatterbait or a spinnerbait, I just stare away. I don't know why. Uh, just personal habit for me. I'm sure I'm probably doing something wrong, but you know, I always try and just keep it as simple as possible. So Minnesota rig for me, small little swim baits. I mean, stuff like that. Just super simple, something that they can grab really fast and just suck it down. That's just kind of how I've always been. Cool. What's your what's your rod and line setup for your Minnesota rig? <clears throat> uh, Minnesota rig, I like to have like a seven foot three, even like a seven foot six rod. Uh, heavy duty, but I kind of want a little bit of tip in it. So I'll sit at a rod company and I'll play around with their heavy duty actions and try and find one that's got just a little bit more bend than the rest. Just because when I do get that bite, I don't want it to be a pull cue where it just stops. I want to literally see that bite actually kind of flutter in the rod tip. And at that point, you can jack them as hard as you want. Sure. Uh, Monty asks, favorite size swim bait on Minnesota Forge size or bigger? Swim bait, I'd have to say a six-inch swim bait. Uh, Five-inch to six-inch swim bait is kind of where I figure out. Uh, we don't throw too many eight-inch, 10-inch, I mean, even 12-inch swim baits up here. I have dabbled in them. You know, I've caught quite a few fish doing it, but for some reason, there's just like a small window of that anywhere between four to six-inch that really capitalizes on them bigger fish. Yeah. So what are some of your favorite like six-ish swim, swim baits in Minnesota? Um, well, Dream Smashers is one of them that I throw quite a bit of, you know. They are a great swim bait. Or like the weedless, or what do we? I like the weedless ones. I don't really care for weed guards. Outside of that, oh yeah. Outside of that, if I'm not kind of sw throwing them, I like to go with my uh, ragus, which are an older type of swim bait, but mm -hmm. I like the inline swimmers. Or I even like to go down to like a huddle stands, and I'll try and get a six inch huddle stand and. I'll even modify it to the Butch Brown way where sure. I'll get two hooks on the very front of the head and I'll do it that way. Uh, a spark shad from Mega Bass, you know, that's another big one for me. Five inch spark shad. Yep. yep. I mean, that especially tipped with, I mean, I don't want to botch the name again, but I'm going to say Uzi Swimmer. You know, that's another big one for me. Uzi. <laughs> uh, nice. Uh, so I was thinking that earlier, like when you're targeting those those bigger crappies, and I mean, is there ever a time and a place where you're look like what swim baits when you're like in that summertime panfish largemouth, uh, where the swim bait shines on those deeper panfish? The, there are times that it really will stand out. I mean, you can go out and you can fish an area, and for example, you might fish it for a week and you might not get a bite, and you will kind of switch between a four inch, a five inch, the six inch, and you'll play with the the Wazi swimmer and you'll play with a dream smasher or you'll play with a Huddleston and you'll kind of just play around to see which size or bulk is going to go off. And you might not get a bite for a week, mm -hmm. but then all of a sudden the week after that, when they decide to all turn on, you can have three days of just incredible fishing that you can't ever, you can't stop talking about. Nice. Uh, so what, what are some of your favorite swim baits for the Minnesota rig? <clears throat> uh, Minnesota rig, I love my Kitex. I absolutely love my Tactical Minnows from Arsenal. 
I love throwing uh, my spark sheds on there from Mega Bass. You know, I kind of just play around with those, you know, I mean, colors, size, wobble to them. I mean, yeah. each one is always going to have a different wobble to them. Kitex got a nice little roll to them, not a very aggressive roll, but they got a big paddle swing to the tail. My spark shad's got a great body roll that rolls left to right, and they've got a moderate tail swing. My tack minnows are very kind of stealthy and quiet, so they like to not really roll so much, but that tail's just nice and subtle. So, I mean, I kind of plan it out too. My Kitex are for fish that aren't being pressured. My spark shads are for moderately pressured fish. And then my super pressured fish that are, I mean, aggressively pressured, I start going to my tactical minnow. You can see that that's like really, I mean, it's a very small paddle tail, pretty nin. It doesn't have a hard kick, which makes it also a good chatterbait trailer because it doesn't have a hard kick to fight the bladed jig. But um, what, I guess, where do you start for smallies with your Minnesota rig? Are you start with like a three inch? Do you start with a four inch? Like what is your kind of like starting point typically? My starting point, I'd say about 3.5 to 4.2. Okay. Anywhere in that three and a half to four and a quarter inch range. So you're going to err on the slightly bigger size and then see what the fish say. Yep. Okay. Uh, very rare do I kind of like kind of pull off of those sizes. I mean, usually when you're throwing it during the summer, these fish are willing to eat. They just need to see that rig come by and think, hey, there's a cloud of bait. But I want that one bait that's right behind them. And it's just a little bit bigger than the blades. I mean... When you start looking at these blades, these blades are about two inches. So, I mean, two inches, add another two inches to a bait, another inch and a half to a bait. That's the one that they're really going to key in. They're really going to lock on. And that's kind of why I just keep it right at that same size. I don't really vary too much from that. Yeah. So Matt says, speaking of rock bass, <clears throat> which we talked about a while back, how to keep them off your bait. Um, to me, going to a jig helps a lot, right? Like, get away from the Texas rig, get away from the jig worm, switch to a jig. Um, that should help you fight off the rock bass. Yeah, agreed. Uh, uh, bulk up your bait, kind of make it so the point they can't get in their mouth, stuff like that. They lose interest. Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, you you still will feel them sometimes pecking at the claw. And so um, I know some people will say every time you feel a tick, you should the hook. Sometimes, but I think there's situations when you know you're in a heavy panfish rock bass area, um, like weighing that fish and making sure that it's actually a bass that picked it up versus like a bluegill or a, a rock bass pecking at a claw or something like that. So just um, you don't need to necessarily swing every single time. and It'll help you kind of fight off some of those rock bass as well. Because <clears throat> like you will catch good bass around rock bass. That's, I mean. Give and take. Now, but if you're trying to get by with a six-inch motor oil power worm, you're gonna the, the bass will never get to it before the rock bass. So no, <laughs> and you might even feel sunfish pecking at that thing. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I mean I've caught rock bass on a ten-inch power worm too, so you can't fight them all off. But you can no. you can put the odds in your favor a little bit. Um, cool. I don't know. Uh, so we've went a little over two hours. I guess we'll kind of open it up a little bit here and see if any more questions come in. Uh, I think we covered a ton of ground, Connor. I really appreciate it. I think we dropped some good knowledge uh, for people to digest, whether they are they caught it live, whether they are catching it on the YouTube replay, whether they are listening to the audio version uh, on their in their favorite podcast. Uh, so you can search Hella Bass 
uh, pick this up and uh, you listen to it when you're going down the road, when you're walking, when you're walking the dog, pushing the stroller, Connor, which you might have in your future. Um, hey, these are all that you can do tonight. tonight. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> the night is still young, um, but uh, these are all things you can do to you know help yourself. You know, pick up some tips. Uh, you know, and that's uh, that's we're here is all about learning and sharing knowledge. Um, I don't know what any other thoughts, uh, Connor, from your end. For the most part, if anyone really has any questions or they really want to learn more about a bait or a technique or something that I do here in the state, feel free. Please message me. You know, go ahead, message me on my Instagram page or even on my Facebook page. I'm I'm always telling people there's never a dumb question. So. I mean, I'm always here to help people and try and advance them in their fishing and just get their knowledge out there. Yeah, cool. And so I got one last thing here. I got this little envelope from Eric's Bass Lab here. Um, for those that, I don't know, know Epic Eric, I've seen him on Travis Manson's stream or on some other stuff. I ordered a little something from him. We'll just pop this open quick as we wind things down. So this is uh, Kyle wants to know, what's your favorite topwater lure while I'm opening this up? My favorite top wire lure for largemouth, I'd have to go with a popping frog. If I didn't go largemouth, I went smallmouth, I'd have to go with a Selzar spook. The Zara spook, you said? Yep. So you're not a big like shower blow guy, vixen guy. You like the old school spook, like a bone? Like, um, kind of like the uh, there's the uh, sexy. Was it the sexy dog pattern? Like a junior or a full size? What's your? I like the junior. You know, I'll play around with the junior and the full size, but typically the junior is kind of where it's at for me. And I will actually take them hooks off, and I will put on separate hooks. Cool. So I got some uh, Epic Eric's uh, Bass Lab stickers. So I might pop one of those up here. Maybe throw it back here. Little note, little personalized note, which is always cool. He says, "What's good? Frozen lakes for him too. At least there's a lot of live streams. Appreciate the sport, tight line." So, I think that kind of sums it up <laughs> for tonight. Uh, we're all struggling through winter, unless you're down in like Florida where it's warm and it's about to kick off. And we didn't even touch on that. We won't spend much time on it. But uh, Bassmasters kicks off tomorrow. Uh, Tampa Warehouse Pro Circuit kicks off tomorrow. Okeechobee and St. John's. I think the first two days, the only live coverage will be on the St. John's. So uh, Bassmaster.com, live coverage. I don't know how much work I'm going to get done tomorrow. Uh, checking that out. But um, last night to get your fantasy teams in, uh, you can still join the Beat Hellabass group, Password Jigs for Pigs. Um, but uh, sign up for that or just tune in and enjoy because uh, I think – I think it's going to go off. That's the rumblings I'm hearing. You got some friends. What are you hearing, Connor? Like, it sounds like it could be pretty good. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be a slug fest. You know, listening to some of the guys talk down there, the weather is lining up perfect. There's no more cold fronts lining up for the weather seam. So these fish are going to be pulling in. They're going to be pulling in hard. They're going to be getting ready to get up, do their business, get that feedback on. So, you know, I expect to see a lot of big weights coming in on both sides of each tournament. Um, kind of the big thing I'm hearing is a lot of guys are struggling right now, but that's because of, they just had that last cold front that rolled through. So some of the guys that were there even before the cold front said that the bite was picking up and it was on the progression. So they're kind of predicting that in the next day, two days here, it's going to be an all out war. 
Yeah, and that, if you think back the year, what, two years ago that Clun won, that was oh, kind yeah. of the same scenario. Everybody was like, oh, man, I think it caught like three, got like three bites in practice, and then like it like warmed up, and they, they didn't have cold nights, and it looks like the – the lows are going to be in the upper 50s, lower 60s. The highs are going to be in the 70s, the 80s. Um, the only thing that might, you know, uh, there's going to be maybe a little bit of rain, which might damper some of the sight fishing. But I think overall, there's going to be a good bite. And the, it may not be quite back to like, I mean, there's not as much grass. So I don't know that we're going to see. I mean, both these lakes are probably not as good as they were two, three years ago. Um, but I still think they're going to be pretty good. I mean, it's going to be a good show. Much better than last year. It should be good. Um, so... I'm excited to, to tune in. Definitely agree. Um, I think the biggest thing is you're not going to see a lot of guys doing too much sight fishing, especially the guys in the top. I think they're going to be targeting fish that are pre-spawn, pulling into some of them grass flats, pulling into some of them uh, spawning areas. So I think you'll see like a lot of uh, big speed worms going by, a lot of chatterbaits, swim jigs, stuff like that. They're going to be really trying to move baits and cover water because they're trying to target them fish pulling into areas. Yeah. I think the sight fishing will be a bigger deal on St. John's and less of a big deal on Okeechobee, but I can agree there. So cool. Well, I think we went plenty long. Um, like I said, uh, remember, leave a comment to enter yourself in the Arsenal prize pack, uh, catch the replay. Uh, always got the podcast option. Want to thank you one more time, Connor. Uh, thank Arsenal official for support Ar- uh, Arsenal fishing for supporting the stream. The codes are down below. The links are down below. If you guys want to support the channel and support those companies. And as always, uh, here to help you guys catch more bass and suck less. <laughs> Peace. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As always, thanks to all of you that hung in till the end of this podcast. This has been another episode of Hellabass Bass Fishing Podcast Experience. Please consider sharing this with any of your bass and buddies and friends. This is the best way for podcasts to grow is through word of mouth. Also, don't forget to search Hellabass on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, or just about anywhere else so that we can connect in more ways. As always, here to help you catch more bass and suck less. <laughs>